you told Rolling Stone magazine that uh, the two reasons to go on tour would be first to have good enough material on a new album to go on tour and then to have a band with you. Yeah. Uh, this time around, I understand you're playing uh, half of Flowers in the Dirt. You're playing uh, not that many songs from 70 to 86. Is there any reason for it? No, not really. Um, uh, it's just the selection that we've done. I originally sat down when we were planning this tour and just thought, if I was going to the show, what would I like to see them play? And I, I wrote down a list of about 35 songs, which included stuff from the Beatle days through to now, to the new album. Uh, and then we goofed around with this stuff in rehearsal and found that certain ones worked better than others live. Things like Sgt. Pepper, because they've got lines in it about, you're such a lovely audience, we love, you know. And I'd never sung that to an audience. Uh, because the only time I ever did that song was when we recorded it. The day we recorded it, and then you kind of put it in the vaults and they released it. And the Beatles weren't touring then, so I, we never did that song. So some of those had to be in the set, really. And it's long enough now, uh, since the breakup of the Beatles, for me not to really feel the pain of it. It's like an old divorce. You know, after a, after a long time, you don't sort of hate the whole affair, like, you, like when you're right on top of it. All of us refused to do Beatle material for, for quite a few years after the uh, breakup. Really, in order to just kind of concentrate on our new careers and kind of get ourselves established as uh, life after the Beatles, you know. So now I think we, we've ended up with 16 Beatles songs, 15 non-Beatle songs in the set. So it's, it's a pretty good mix. But as you say, there aren't that many songs from the sort of Wings period. Um, there are reasons. I mean, for instance, Mull of Kintyre would have been a good record to do maybe in Canada because it's sold well here and you've got a lot of Scottish people over here. Um, and French like bagpipes too. But I mean, <laughs> so I hear anyway. But um, in America, that wouldn't have made as much sense. So you, you've got to try and work it out so you get a, a set that will uh, satisfy most people. We've got, I think we've got a pretty good balance. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Remember, this is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and thank you so much, everyone out there, for listening to the show. Hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today, everyone, we are going to be once again analysing some live Paul McCartney content, though we're not going to be doing one of our gig reviews, though we should be getting back to that side series relatively soon, I reckon. And instead, today we're going to paint the town red with Macca's 1990 live album, Tripping the Live Fantastic. Though I will not be alone for such an endeavour. No, thankfully I will be joined by my very good friend and musician Dylan Seavey, who you may remember from our Let It Be film review episodes, as well as his various traitorous appearances on the Two Legs podcast. Of course, I love having Dylan on this podcast. He's a fantastic mind to bounce ideas off and work ideas out with. And most importantly of all, folks, he doesn't put up with any of my shit, which I think is good for you, the listener, you know? Originally, this episode was going to be a part two 
of a two-part series I was going to do on the Paul McCartney 1989-1990 World Tour. And even maybe for about the first hour of this recording, I was still under that assumption that this is what that was going to be. However, you have already read the title of this. This is in itself part one of two chats me and Dylan have about this double album. So I guess the episode where I cover the world tour in a bit more depth proper is something I've missed twice now because I could have done that during the Flowers in the Dirt episode as well. But, you know, what are you going to do? Either way, these two episodes you're about to hear are fucking great anyway. So yeah. After some housekeeping, I'm going to do a quick intro to this album in particular, not the full 1989-90 tour, like I say, and then I'll give you the need-to-know stats about the album, and then simply I'll cut to the live feed with me and Dylan, where we get into it in a reasonable amount of time, at least. Also, just so you're aware, this episode was recorded a while back, and so therefore it's full to the brim with anachronisms. You know, I remember talking to Ken Michaels a while back, and he talked about how his scripts are literally timeless. Like, he writes them in such a way that they can be played whenever, which is a part of his massively successful syndication process, you know, which is incredibly shrewd of him. But that ain't the case here on Paul or Nothing, is it, folks? The big one is, of course, the release of McCartney 3 at the time of recording. We didn't even know what the four bonus tracks were, let alone all of the ensuing uh, success of the album. I do also demand in a rather obnoxious fashion that Peter Jackson and Apple release some footage of the new upcoming documentary film The Beatles Get Back, only days before Peter Jackson would drop the non-trailer. And also, I also talk about the PS5 coming out, the Sony games console, the PlayStation 5. Again, that also has been released subsequently with an even more troubled uh, release than McCartney 3. So yeah, with all that settled, we can now crack on with the housekeeping. What have we got in terms of news for today? Uh, not that much really. We only put out an episode a couple of days ago, but we do have another obituary since last time. Though unlike the last episode where that loss was you know, a tragedy for the music scene, particularly the Liverpool one, this time, I'm only reporting a death to childishly, callously, and cruelly mock the deceased. Yes, super cunt, power-crazed, murderous psychopath Phil Spector has kindly decided to roundly fuck off and die. Uh, not too many other podcasts will say this, folks, but I know a load of you out there are thinking the exact same thing. Good riddance to bad rubbish. Let's all move on. To get in contact with the show, join us. <laughs> to get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Of course, as always, I want to hear your Paul McCartney stories. I've been asking for your McCartney 3 reviews. We're going to have two more of them today. Please keep sending them in. Why not? And as of last week, just as a little goof on my part, I've been asking for any Paul McCartney parenting-related stories. Have you taken any of your kids to gigs have you any Paul McCartney-related stories to do with your own parents or perhaps a friend, you know? Any of that, I'd love to hear it. Email in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. But, like I say, we do have two emails to read out for you today. The first is from Bowie or Bowie Vask, 
I'd like to thank them right off the bat for the first of two song-by-song -song reviews of McCartney 3. Overall, the response towards and the conversation surrounding this album has been really fun, and I'm just going to try and keep it going. So let Bowie or Bowie's email inspire you to write in also. They begin... Hello Sam, this is the first email I've ever written to a podcast ever, so I saved it for you. Brackets, my favourite. Oh, shucks. I first would like to thank you for doing these shows for all these years. I am a 17-year-old gender-fluid person from Iowa. Also, I may be in the minority here, but I actually love the housekeeping section. Okay, so the main reason I'm emailing in is because I wanted to share my ranking of the McCartney 3 songs. At number 11, and at the bottom, we have Deep Down. Okay, so I love McCartney 2, and it's very similar, but I just can't stand this song. At 10, there's Women and Wives. This song reminds me of like when your grandpa during Christmas goes and plays a tone on the piano. Winterbird slash When Winter Comes. I like this song, but there are a couple of parts where the setup with the words and the vocals during his singing just sounds wrong. Kiss of Venus. I love the next eight tracks. These are all great, I'm not gonna lie. I'm a sucker for love, so the Kiss of Venus is perfect. Then at seven we have Sliding. Originally I had this higher, I think at number four, but after I re-listened to the album again, I changed my mind. But I do love this rocker. Find my way. This song is mediocre, I know, but I can't help but just love it. Seize the day. It's fun. I can't lie, it's just so much fun. Lavatory Lil. These next four could all be number one for me. Lavatory Lil is so much fun again, and it's so great to see Maka do a disc track again after too many people. Then at number three, we have Pretty Boys. Sam, Sam, please don't kill me on this one, but I absolutely love this song. It's definitely my guilty pleasure, but I absolutely love it with all my heart. I will die for this song. Number two, Deep Deep Feeling. Just perfect and very deep. Then at number one, Long-Tailed Winter Bird. I can jam to this for hours. I already learned it on guitar and it's driving my girlfriend mad how much I play it. Anyway, Sam, I'm sorry for such a long email. Have a good one, my friend. Bowie slash Bowie Ask. Again, Bowie slash Bowie, thank you for that email there. Of course, I can look past your review of Pretty Boys, as I can be quite forgiving when I want to be, but I cannot let you place deep down at the bottom of this list. I mean, I can tolerate it being bashed on literally every other single fucking podcast out there, but not here, not in these hallowed walls. Not no way, not no how. Fortunately, your comment on how Women and Wives was like Grandpa at the piano at Christmas was so accurate that I'll totally look the other way. Also, I can't really have a go at someone during a housekeeping segment when they've written in and said they enjoy the housekeeping segment. Like, am I a puppet on a string? Am I being played for a fool here? I don't know. Um, <laughs> either way, Bowie slash Bowie, glad you're enjoying the show. Glad you like McCartney 3 even more. Hopefully we'll hear from you again in the future as to how I pronounce your first name. Peace out. Just as a little aside, I love how even like after four or five years of doing this podcast now, people are still apologising for sending in long emails. Like, are you all not clued in on the scam yet, folks? Like, come on. 
I'm trying to pad out and fluff up my terrible content here. You know, send me a thesis if you want. I'll just sit here and read that, and that'll be the day's episode. Fuck it, you know. Anyway, our second email, or should I say, second and third emails, which were great for me to read, as they immediately validated my d- decision to start re-uploading all of my old episodes to YouTube. I loved reading these two, and judging by the first word used, they likely came from somewhere a little closer to home than, say, Iowa or Brooklyn, like from the last episode. Uh, it comes from a chap named Phil, and it begins with, Hey up, Sam! While denied many of life's pleasures by pandemic measures, I have at least had a chance to catch up on your recent Macca podcasts, now you've uploaded some of them to YouTube, which is a media even an old git like me can access. Good to hear some love for I Lie Around, one of my favourite Wings tunes, and a highlight of the repackaged Red Rose Speedway. Have you done, or are you planning to do a podcast on the McGear album that Wings recorded at 10cc Studio before they set to work on Venus and Mars? And just to have a quick pause there, yes, uh, Phil, yeah, I do intend to do that episode. I'm very excited to talk about the McGear album. I might also have someone in mind who might be listening to this episode right now who might be interested in doing a McGear album review. Though, what really spurred me on to do this episode was the fact that part of the fan mail, the big box I received a couple of weeks ago, not that I've gone on about it or anything, uh, included a copy of the McGear album. So, once again, thank you to the OG Tony Vosal for that. Started listening to the album over and over, and I've definitely got a lot to say. Looking forward to that episode. Keep your ear to the ground for that one, Phil. And I'll just continue to Phil's next email that he swiftly sent in. He said... Macca 3 is a good album. Egypt Station didn't really do it for me, as often he left the best tracks off, aka 62nd Street and Frank Sinatra's Party. And I also never warmed to new, despite some interesting moments. Long-tailed Winter Bird. Half an idea stretched to breaking point, but it wouldn't have made the last two albums, so that's a real plus for me. It's quite a brave opener, although there's perhaps nowhere else for it to go on the album. Find My Way, a bit generic latter-day macca, and it would have fit the last two albums. Pretty Boys, here the album gets more interesting. It has a nice melody, different subject, and great guitars. The sheer sounds he gets out of his guitars is so good, going all the way back. Every Night off the first album is a good example of this, and then of course, there was the delicious sounding guitar all over Ram. His guitar sound is enough for a study all of its own. Women and Wives, Another good song. Folks talk about the Lady Madonna voice, but to me, it's similar to Man We Was Lonely as well, so it's well within his rep. Lavatory Lil. Nice rocker, akin to Nobody Knows from McCartney 2. Concise and energetic. Slide In. I got the vinyl, and this finishes off side one with crunchy brilliance. I tried to ignore the similarity to Walking in the Air in the melody, though. Deep, deep feeling. I love Secret Friend, and this was another great example of Paul taking a theme and developing it to perfection. This is what we want from a solo album, and it wouldn't have made the last two, so it is special. Kiss of Venus, more great guitar and a strong melody. We can't have the early 70s voice, but it would have worked so well then too. Seize the Day, okay, nice bridge, might have fitted Egypt Station well enough, and it would have been one of the better tracks. Deep Down. I like this one. 
It's got a she's my baby groove and note you never wrote minor key vibe that would have fitted speed of sound. Not everyone's favourite, but I love 70s McCartney, so I'll take it. Long-tailed Winterbird, When Winter Comes, it's a perfect closer, like one of these days on McCartney 2, so there is some continuity there. Again, fabulous sounding guitar, and it's one of those sweet songs that is always seen to do effortlessly. Pure McCartney indeed. Anyway, those are my thoughts for what it's worth. Keep the flag flying. Phil. Once more, thank you so much for that email, Phil. That was incredible. Like, I can't believe I've got two McCartney 3 reviews to read out today. And it's interesting to see where, you know, these two re reviews have both been congruent and different in many ways. Thank God you were much kinder to uh, Deep Down. Though, again, so much love for Pretty Boys on this podcast. Except from the host, you know. I think this might be one of those songs where I am just against the, the, uh, the grain, against the curve on this one. Though... I'm glad it's not Women and Wives that has been the uh, controversial number here. I'm glad most people are kind of at least nonplussed about that one. Though, Phil, I do have to admit, an episode where I get some guitar experts on just to talk about the guitar tone, development and skill of Paul McCartney really would be an interesting episode. So if I do do that, I'll definitely credit you there, mate. Thank you for that one. Thank you for your emails. I hope to hear back again from you soon. And P.S. You are so right. The best tracks off Egypt Station that were left off were indeed 62nd Street and Frank Sinatra's Party. You're clearly a very clever man, Phil. Again, folks, if you too want your email read out here on Paul or Nothing, just drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I want to hear your Paul McCartney stories, your Paul McCartney trivia, Paul McCartney parenting stories, your reviews of McCartney 3. Maybe you want to comment on one of my own reviews. Anything at all. Just drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. If you want more constant updates and a bit more of a personal touch, follow us on Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Follow our sister blog, our bonus content blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. There is a new episode about Linda McCartney coming out very, very soon. I know I said it would be on the last one, but, you know... The podcast takes precedence over the blog, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. But yeah, there'll be a new article about Linda McCartney up on there soon. That's paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com for all sorts of bonus Paul or nothing content. To follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube, simply type in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney podcast. If you want to help out the show really quickly, which would be most appreciated please leave us a five-star review or give us a thumbs up on whatever podcasting or video viewing platform you are using it all helps it gives us that exposure helps introduce us to new people hopefully grows the poor or nothing community however if, we, if you want to be in the poor or nothing family please consider joining our patreon page patreon as i'm sure you are more than aware is a service whereby you the public can help fund donate to independent content creators such as myself of course i do the show in my own spare time there are no ads on paul or nothing i do intend to keep it that way so if you have been enjoying the show if you've been enjoying the hundreds of hours of content and thousands of hours of work i've been putting into the show and you would like to buy me a beer or a coffee sometime please consider chucking a couple of dollars at my face down the internet each month it all goes right back into the show 
whether it's stuff for me to review, whether it's me getting new equipment for the show, maybe paying off lucrative guests, or just paying the hosting fees, you know, keeping the lights running, that kind of thing. And if you would like to be a part of that, links down below, check out our Patreon page, join our wonderful Paul or Nothing family, the likes of which we have Stephanie Miller, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia P, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, Matt Phillips, and of course, Tony Vosile. Also, just in terms of supporting the show, I do want to give a huge shout out to one anonymous private donor who, for whatever reason, you know, maybe you just don't want to commit to something online or give out your details just to you know, something not as established as like PayPal or something like that. I get that. And he got in contact with me and just said he wanted to give a one-off donation to the show. I gave him my deets and he did just that. And that was incredibly kind as well. And the only reason I'm mentioning this very, very kind chap is not only to give him a huge shout out, which he deserves, but it's just, you know, there are many ways you can support the show. You know, you can leave a five-star review, you can write something, you can recommend us to a friend, you know, you can post about us on Facebook or online or wherever you discuss Beatle music. Or like many of the people I've been talking about on more recent episodes, you can always just privately get in contact with me and send me free shit. It's all appreciated. Hey folks, it's all part of the hustle. I do apologise. I do feel like a terrible shill. But it is indeed all over now. And it is time to trip the live. Fantastic. I'm going to get my main man Dylan on now. This is going to be a great episode. I can't wait for you to hear this. It's a right corker. Let's cut right now. One, two, three, go me. And now, folks, it's time for me to bring on today's returning guest, who you'll no doubt remember from his first outing on this podcast, where we discussed the classic 1970 Beatles cinematic documentary film, Michael Lindsay Hogg's Let It Be. Go back and check out the episode if you haven't already, or those episodes, actually. And, yeah, we had a real hell of a time conversing and doing those episodes, but... Not only that, we actually got a rather good response from you listeners, with one emailer even going so far as to call him the Lennon to my McCartney. Uh, high praise indeed, I know, right? Um, and obviously, no pressure on my guest now, eh? But, you know, he's got a lot to live up to. Everyone, please welcome back my good friend, musician and fellow Beatle aficionado, Mr. Dylan Seavey. What's going on, dude? Welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. I wish I had known about that beforehand, so my expectations didn't shift so wildly and quickly. I know it's uh, it was it was a lovely little email to start to uh, start the day with when I got it. I must admit. Yeah, my mom writes really good emails like that. She's always had a way with words. <laughs> Dear Paul or nothing, my boy, yeah. <laughs> he's the bestest. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think my mom would ever be caught saying the bestest. I think she has too much pride with that. I mean, I'm still trying to trying to get my mom just to subscribe to my podcast on her phone. Like, <laughs> she's like, Sam, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm like, no, I don't care, mom. I just want the downloads to boost my ego. You know, an extra download every every couple of days. You know, that's all I'm asking for. Well, I um, think in order for us to truly be successful, we need them to not support us because yes. then it gives us the drive to keep striving for more. I'll show you, Mom. I'll show you. I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to stay in my van and surf every day on Cali Beach, dude. Don't, don't know why I slipped into that. But yeah, man, it really has been too long since we've had you on here last. Uh, have you been keeping well? 
doing my best in in a covid world mm-hmm. you know the the live music industry is pretty decimated but before the weather got cold here did get to play some outdoor social distance shows and get a little taste of that and that was very nice and been recording music whenever we can and you know just doing doing everything to to stay sane it's it's crazy times though and despite all of that time passing peter jackson's uh, the beatles get back still hasn't come out so <laughs> but we haven't had any further rescheduling so it's it's the little victory yeah, I mean, show us some fucking footage now, gents. Come on, wet our beaks a little. Once McCartney 3 is out the way, you know, they really should get get on with that. Oh, speaking of McCartney 3, obviously that's the album that's on the tip of everyone's tongues at the mm-hmm. moment. I want to know your take on it, dude. Are you uh, are you looking forward to this release? Or are you, you know, are you going to listen to it on Spotify, day of release? I absolutely can't wait for it. I will be listening to it the second that it's up. I find in general, when I look back through Paul's discography, that when he is left to a lot of his own devices, he tends to churn out my favorite material of his. And, you know, I'm certainly a fan of what he's done in recent years, but there's definitely a lot of outside influences between, you know, the two main producers on Egypt Station, the four producers on New I'm really excited to hear what 78-year-old Paul McCartney is really thinking when he's not letting any of that in. Because I think the last time that he really did anything by himself, I mean, he he played all the instruments on Electric Arguments with youth, and I don't want to disrespect youth by implying that he had nothing to do with that process, because he certainly did. But that being the last time that Paul was really doing everything himself, I mean, that's over 10 years ago. Hmm. So that that's a lot of time for different sounds and influences and ideas to be trickling into his mind. So I'm really, really excited. Where are you at with it? I'm just grateful that, he, that he's putting out music. A lot of people are getting annoyed that he's putting out all these editions of the album and all this merch and stuff that has delayed it. By, uh, uh, you know, only a week. It's not like Peter Jackson saying, oh, it's going to be a, a, a year later. Sorry, dickheads. <laughs> but just the idea that, hey, you know, there's going to be at least a couple of songs that I like on it. And that's worth the attempt, you know. Going back to your point, though, it will be funny to see how much uh, producers, if they have been at all, kind of propping up Paul during this time and whether he's going to be revealed to be like Grandpa Simpson, you know. You know, back in the day, quarters had pictures of bumblebees on them. Give me five bees for a quarter, you'd say, you know. You sounded just like old man Macca there. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I took the ferry over to Ogdenville, which is what we call Shelbyville at the time. <laughs> and uh, I wore an onion on my belt, a glass onion on my belt, which was the style at the time, you know. Uh, sorry, pe- sorry, people over the age of 40 there. That'll have just gone right over your heads. But I'm glad you're excited, dude. Have you uh, have you become a full-on McCartney acolyte here and pre-ordered any of the various merch or editions or coloured vinyls? <laughs> well, I cannot stress enough how much my industry has been decimated. Uh, <laughs> so again, my, my normal income is not what it would be. I do have a part-time online job that's making me a little bit but i will be honest and say that 
You've put it all towards McCartney 3. Good. I night. have put it all towards McCartney 3. I pawned my fiance's ring in her sleep, sold my two cats, and I am currently in t- looking into uh, refinancing the house that I don't even own. So, no, I have pre-ordered I've pre-ordered one edition, which will be enough for me. I care more about the music, uh, and I don't at all discourage anyone who is buying all the copies they can. If, if that is their prerogative, then great for them. I have my own things that I like to indulge in, too. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a super collector. That's, that's not my thing. I just want the music. Although I am interested in hearing what these four additional tracks are going to be. Um, and I've totally lost the plot at this point. I think that there's a Japanese edition that's going to have just all, all four of them. of them on it. Yeah, definitely got to gotta get that one. And it's weird how the idea of the Japanese bonus track thing still exists in fucking 2020 <laughs> in the age of streaming, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, it's all, it's always the Japanese, isn't it, Sam? The Japanese? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to do that Simpsons reference. But listen, they they're always ahead of the game by ten years. They've probably had a COVID vaccine since before we even knew about it. I mean, it just is what it is. They've already got McCartney four, mate. They've. <laughs> well, you can make a uh, an argument that some of his other songs sprinkled throughout these other records could have made up McCartney three, and this is really McCartney four. Yeah, hundred percent. But, you know, no, I'm I'm extremely, extremely excited. And I know that this is the most overused trope, but I really do feel extremely grateful that he's putting out new music at 78 years old and and still doing it. And people can complain all they want about his voice not being what it used to be, so on, so forth. But the matter of fact is. He's still one of the greatest composers of all time, and he is giving us a beautiful gift. And if anyone wants to be doing that, whether it's him, Bob Dylan, who put out a new record this year, Neil Young, Bruce Springsteen, any of them, I welcome it. Because it's not a matter of not loving and respecting newer artists, uh, because obviously that's the industry I work in. I play with a lot of great young artists, but... You know, these are these are the people that we learned from. You know, these are the people that wrote the blueprint. And if, if they're still adding to that, I think that's a brilliant thing. And if anyone's still feeling a bit butter, they can just wait until early next year when some inevitable deluxe release comes out. You know, it'll have everything, I imagine. Of course, as it always does. Will it be... A roulette table for this ultimate edition, as <laughs> as, as uh, some people have theorised. You know, maybe there'll be some kind of Paul McCartney board game for the dice. You know, yeah. Can we talk about this album artwork? Oh, it's awful, isn't it? Oh my gosh! I was just talking about this on Blotto Beatles last night, just to plug my little appearance there again. It, and I, 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 I said these exact words on there. It looks like you know when you go on PowerPoint and you do a background and you use a gra- <laughs> and you use a gradient and and you select kind of a dirty shit brown color and black and you select um, horizontal plane and you click it's... generate and it looks like that and you put a Photoshop dice on the front cover. Apparently, it's, it's... Quite like a, a really famous fucking graphic designer slash artist and I'm like you can't you can't tell. 
It's just, you know, I thought Egypt Station was was fantastic. I thought oh, I think gorgeous. the new co- I think the new cover is really cool. I don't hate the memory almost full cover as much as other people do. And a lot of people also hate Driving Rain, but I I think the cover of Driving Rain is actually pretty interesting and kind of fits the music on that record. I think this is far and away one of if not the worst and you know it i don't might be the worst paul mccartney album cover. <sighs> yeah because I, mean, like... I know you're not a fan of flowers in the dirt flowers in the dirt looks like van gogh compared to this in my opinion yeah i won't let it cloud my my judgment on the music i mean there's plenty of fantastic records out there with bad album covers but this is uh this is bad is it because like paul couldn't get in contact with other artists because of covid and it's like <laughs> Um, Pretty sure that email still works the last time I checked. Yeah, like, um, fortunately, I live next to Ed Ruscha, so I just thought, hey, you know, I, I want to do something with dice. And I bet he just went to his garage, just took a photo of a, 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 a die and went on to PowerPoint and printed it off. Well, and, and you know, McCartney won. The McCartney one album cover is iconic and beautiful. We haven't seen the rear cover of McCartney 3 yet, though, and I reckon there's going to be a really good portrait by Mary on it. I reckon that's going to be the case. I mean, I hope so, but in that case, put it on the front cover. Like, you know, McCartney 1's so great. McCartney 2, I think, is perfectly quirky, given the music on the record. Like, this record is going to have to sound, I don't know, this is going to have to sound like a sci-fi fucking space record in order for that cover to make sense to me, and I don't think that's what we're getting. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm excited for the music. It's just a terrible cover, and that's okay. It does look like something that, like, maybe the fireman could have used, you know? Yeah. And not in a good way, either. Yeah. All three fireman covers are so much more artistic than this. Why couldn't Paul have just painted something during lockdown with the kids and Mary? Exactly. I mean, he did Egypt Station, right? That's him. Yeah, yeah, that's him. I just like the words Egypt Station, you know? Oh. One of these days, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a uh, a video reaction to your podcast where there's a counter in the corner, checking yeah. off every time you do the impression. No, on my uh, other Beatle podcast that I may or may not be working on, hint hint, wink wink, nudge nudge, say no more, Squire. My co-host has banned me from doing impressions, and sometimes like I'm just like you know a little reference I'm making or a little story quirk I'm doing involves me taking on the voice of a beetle and it's so hard not to just you know you know when you do your ringo just to start doing that you know it's it's very hard not to do that especially for an asshole like me but um, well in the post in the post-covid world when we can do beetle fest again which by the way i mean i've i've never had the opportunity to go to one and i would really really love to but what i want to happen is i want all the podcasts to be there and to assemble the four best impressions. And we're going to get Tony Trigardo of Fab Four Free For All, who does the best George. You're going to do Paul, and we need to find <laughs> out who does the best John and Ringo. And it's we're just going to have a, a ball. I've never thought I did a bad George Harrison, though. You've got the uh, you've got the inflections for sure. You know, I'm just signing more more paperwork that I don't know what it is. You just need to lower your voice about six octaves, and then you've got it. Is it really low? I thought Harrison was like high pitch. That's the point. No, I've very, always very low. But now yeah, I feel like I'm sounding more like John. You know, you sound you sound like something. Anyway, 
Okay, Dylan, now that we've caught up with each other, I think it's high time we started talking some live Paul McCartney. Of course, this is going to be part of our look at the Paul McCartney 1989 World Tour. And today, we're going to be focusing on the actual product that came out at the other end of that tour, the 1990 album Tripping the Live Fantastic. Now, dude, I'm not going to lie, I was very excited when you floated this idea to me, mostly because I was unaware that you even knew that it existed, really. Like, <laughs> how far back do you go with it, and what made you decide to choose it for today? Well, Trippin' the Life Fantastic, not only am I familiar with it, it's probably the second or third thing I ever heard by Paul McCartney, the solo artist. Because when I was younger and getting into the Beatles, my Uncle Jim found out that I was beginning this obsession, and he has a massive CD collection up at his house in Bangor, Maine. Oh, wow. And he immediately snail mailed me about 10 different CDs uh, between the Beatles and the solo Beatles. And included in that was Tripping the Live Fantastic. So somewhere in my own CD collection that's in a box in my garage right now, there are two burned CDs from probably 1999 or 2000. That I'd be interested to see if they still play, and I probably didn't know at the time how to burn a CD where you can make the tracks segue into each other. So after every track, there's probably a two-second skip. But it was it was one of my introductions to Paul. I heard it before "Flowers in the Dirt," which obviously there's a lot from this album uh, mm -hmm. taken from that record. And so you know, I've always sort of had a a nostalgic sort of view on this record and I floated it out to you because I haven't revisited it probably in at least 10 or 15 years I thought it would be fun to go back to it and uh, I don't want to uh, I don't know what the right word is I wasn't surprised because I kind of had a feeling that my opinions had changed a little bit but I'm interested to see where you're at with it because I, I know how I currently feel about it well for me this is not an album that I'm really that familiar with at all. I mean, I think we first mentioned this a couple of months ago, and I've been like listening to it on and off in the meantime. And I've been generally pleasantly surprised with it. Overall, spoiler alert, so you can end the podcast now if you want my general opinion, but I really, I really enjoyed it. I really have. It's a fantastic representation of this era of McCartney, I can't imagine how excited people were when he announced that he was going back on the road. Man, if I was Paul McCartney, I'd buy the road. <laughs> well, you know, and and that's something I've been thinking about. I'm sure that older listeners are grimacing at the fact that this record and this period of time are about to be reviewed and analyzed by two people who weren't even born when it happened. <laughs> but contextually, that is something I try to keep in mind, you know, for whatever you feel about this record, you know, the, the quality of the music. I mean, this was momentous. I mean, this was the first time he was back on the road in 10 years, technically, because he, he had done the 79 shows with Wings, but it was the first major tour in 13 years. And with everything that had happened in that 13 years, I mean, th that's... That is hugely momentous, and I know I certainly would have killed to be at one of these shows, given all of that. Yeah, 
also, just in terms of this show and its chronology, we've recently just finished our episode, well, semi-recently, I should say, on Flowers in the Dirt, Hall's solo 1989 album, the album that supported this tour, or this tour supported, I'm not sure which way around it is, but yeah, it's the tour we're talking about today, and originally, when I first started this podcast, I don't know what I did, either I was on setlist.com or I was just going through the entire discography on Wikipedia, like clicking forward as you do, going deep down the sure. rabbit hole. And I saw the setlist for this and I was dreading coming to this album back then. I was <laughs> like, oh my God, look at all this that I do not recognise. I am not looking forward to this <laughs> at all. I was very much a, a dirty casual fan as I've been referring to lately on the show. Like, I was probably one of those people who were thinking, where's all the Beatles stuff? But yeah, I'm looking at it now, looking at the set list going going into this over the, over the last few months and putting my notes together. Been very excited indeed. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing since we did a film review last time, we could have done the Paul McCartney Get Back live concert film that was also released in conjunction with this album. But it's mm. more or less just a, a truncated version of all the music on this, and we get to talk about more songs this way. So th- this is really him for the first time in his solo career. And let's see, 19 years, 20 years after the breakout, this is the first time he's really going full Beatle. And it's a conversation that's had a lot by fans about how much Paul relies on being a Beatle, you know, really over the last 30 years between bringing things up in interviews and archival things and then going to the shows and at least two thirds of the show is Beatles material. You know, this, this is the first time that he's doing that, that he, he is, he's laying into that. So, how do you feel about that? Like, wh- what do you think that says about the historical significance of this? I think this album is much more of a transitionary period than I think people give it credit for. There's a fucking lot of solo Paul on this. But mm. you are right, though. He is certainly putting his nutsack on the table in terms of like, yeah, I've, I've got this back catalogue that no one else has. Why am I not utilising it? Why am I not making the crowd happy? Why am I not giving people who were not possibly there during the original run of the Beatles to hear some of this music? And yeah, something we're, we're going to see today, firstly, is most of these songs, even the ones that aren't rock, are going to have an increase of rock uh, arrangement and composition by a factor of about 10 to 15%. This has all just been slightly zhuzhed up with this modern touring band that Paul's got. But the other thing we're going to see is that he's really taken advantage of the technological leaps, especially in terms of synth technology uh, since yeah. the breakup of the Beatles. Like so many of these songs, they couldn't have done live originally. But now we're going to get songs post-1966, which is really cool. And I'm sure people would have been losing their mind over. Mm-hmm. How, how do you feel about bands plugging their new album during a tour, though? I like it. Um, but I also come at that from a musician standpoint but the way i look at it is if i'm going to see a group or or an artist i'm usually well aware that they probably have new product out and you should at least expect that you can't expect an artist to not be 
proud of their recent work or to plug it. It's interesting. So, for instance, I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers four times. And the first time I saw him, he had just released a solo record and played, I think, two songs from it. And the rest of it was mostly hits. Seeing Tom Petty for the first time and seeing him play American Girl and Free Fallin' and Won't Back Down and Running Down a Dream, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And then the next two times I saw him, they were both phenomenal, and he did pull out some different deep cuts, and especially the third time he was touring a new album and played three or four cuts from it. It was great. But I did find myself after the third time feeling a little bit like, okay, as much as I love American Girl and Free Fallen and Running Down a Dream, if I saw him again, I would want it to be something different. And then luckily, the last time I saw him was in a very intimate venue where he mostly played deep cuts, which was absolutely incredible, something I would love for Paul to do. But that first experience is the one that sticks in your mind. And like you, I've only ever seen Paul once. I got to see Paul at Fenway Park back in 2009. And I was so happy to see him do Hey Jude and Let It Be and Blackbird and Band on the Run. And that was amazing. I, I wouldn't necessarily want him to not do that, especially if it's the only time I'm ever going to see him. But at the same time, the super fan in me was ecstatic that he broke out Mrs. Vanderbilt and he brought out Calico Skies, you oh. know, songs that I never assumed that he would play at a concert in 2009. He did two Flaming Pie songs. He played the title track and he played Calico Skies. And even at that point, I think Memory was only two years old, so he was still doing Only Mama Knows and Dance Tonight, and he was doing Sing the Changes from Electric Argument. And I thought it was really cool at the time that he was doing some of that stuff. Really, it seemed like the first part of the concert was for some of these obscure deep cuts and new songs, and the second half was for all the hits. I think that there's a fine balance to strike with it. You know, the other flip side of this is that I've seen Bob Dylan 12 times and you never know what you're going to get. I mean, <laughs> one night you might get like Rolling Stone and Mr. Tambourine Man and the next night you might be getting all post-1997 material and then <laughs> tangled up in blue for good measure. I go back and forth. I think that ultimately the artist has every right to do whatever the hell they want. I think they should be proud of, of their hits and their biggest accomplishments. And it's certainly great for the fans. I know for you too, seeing him when you did, I'm sure you were also ecstatic to see him play all those big songs. And I'm sure everyone was ecstatic for this live tour in 1989 to see all these songs they probably never thought he'd do. At the same time, I think it's just gotten to a point with Paul where I think a lot of us would prefer for him to not walk it back a little, but just be a little more mindful that, you know, there's a lot of people who do enjoy and respect and know the entire catalog of his, of his solo material and that he would uh, throw us a little bit more of a bone every now and then. Yeah. Paul McCartney's set list is almost like 
the lack of a technological jump in something like the PlayStation. The leap from, from PlayStation 1 to 2 is massive, but the leap from PS2 to PS3 is a smaller one, and then with the PS3 to the PS4, smaller leap, and now with the PlayStation 5 coming out, it's an even smaller leap again, and it, mm-hmm. each one looks more similar to the last. <laughs> this one that uh, it came out in 1989 ended in 1990. I would have been so happy with this set list. Yeah. It is very Beatle heavy, but it's very solar heavy, like like I mentioned earlier. And there is a lot of the album on here. I'm not sure if there is such a thing as having too much of the new album on a, a set list like this, especially considering how long Paul's shows are as well. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it depends, too, on the age of it. Because the older you get, the more the more backlog you get, the more hits you have, people are going to expect to hear that. Whereas a new band, you know, like for instance, someone someone like Radiohead, right up until probably in Rainbows, the expectation and even the desire when you go see them is that you're going to see a lot of the new album. And then mm. at a certain point, you become a legacy act. And once you're a legacy act, it's kind of hard to break out of that. Yeah, this is kind of like a, a little sweet spot in his career because it is still him doing the three-hour solo shows, but mm-hmm. he has got a smaller set list. Like, he doesn't have to include Dance Tonight and My Valentine and yeah. Come On To Me. And instead, we can we can spend, you know, <laughs> quite, quite a large portion of each gig playing uh, standard rock and roll covers that I'm sure we will mention as well when we, when we, when we get to them. Before we do get onto the songs, though, let's just have a quick look at the average set list for this tour, Dylan. Okay. So, sorry for listeners out there who somehow haven't already heard this album, because this will probably spoil quite a few of the songs that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> so the main set list would look like this. Figure of Eight, Jet, Rough Ride, Got to Get You Into My Life, Ebony and Ivory, Band on the Run, We Got Married, Maybe I'm Amazed, The Long and Winding Road, The Fool on the Hill, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Good Day Sunshine, Can't Buy Me Love, the medley of Put It There and Hello Goodbye, Things We Said Today, Eleanor Rigby, This One, My Brave Face, Back in the USSR, 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran, Coming Up, Let It Be, Ain't That a Shame by Fats Domino, Live and Let Die, a portion of a song called The Hustle, which is like a fake out used to introduce Hey Jude, and then Hey Jude, with an encore of Yesterday, Get Back, Golden Slumbers, Carry That Way, and The End. Now, Dylan, immediately, for us who have been preparing to talk about this album, that's actually quite faithful to what we're going to be talking about shortly, Like especially with like Figure of Eight, Jet, Rough Ride, Got to Get You Into My Life, Ebony and Ivory, they're all pretty much in the exact same order, and it seems the, the only times he breaks the integrity of this and the kind of continuity is with all of the like like little doodles and sketches he seems to scatter throughout this. There's a lot of fun uh, sound check stuff that we're going to be talking about today as well. It kind of reminds me of like skits on rap albums, though. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, it's like sure. it's like Eminem's Ken Caniff or something. It's like whoa, we we broke 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 via broke. Yeah, I think in many ways Paul is the original Marshall Mathers. But that's another. That's another. No, 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 no. D twelve is like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band <laughs> in in many ways. And folks, that 
That's that's not even that stupid. You could write an essay on that, I reckon. I bet about 80% of your listeners will not understand what you just said. Are you saying they don't know about proof and uh, <laughs> and uh, like all I, of the I, other What I'm saying are... is that I am of the age demographic that that was targeted towards, and even I'm having to search back in my memory to say, oh, yeah, that was a thing. Well, there was a song in the awful Mary Poppins sequel that came out a couple of years ago called Trip the Light Fantastic. And... What do you think of this, this this title, Tripping the Live Fantastic? Do you like the pun? It's fine. Uh, I, I hate to say I'm indifferent to it. I, you know, I guess I like that he did something. It's slightly more clever than back in the U.S., I suppose. <laughs> it's slightly more interesting than Good Evening New York City, although I do love the bluntness of Amoeba Gig. That is my absolute favorite Paul live album title. It's also quite intriguing as as well. You're, you're like, oh, may, m- maybe he shrunk himself down, Fantastic Adventures style or something, you know? Yeah. I think Tripping the Live Fantastic is fine. I mean, you get the fact that it's a live album from the title, which, you know, there you go, easy marketing. It's a bit wordy. It doesn't have the punch of Wings Over America, but it's fine. I I can't imagine anyone having a strong opinion on it, but what do I know? Yeah, it's a shame they never attempted to do a Wings Over the World back then. And I guess the yeah. technological constraints would be like, no, no, we've just got to, we'll record one American gig well, because we ain't made of money and there's no guarantee that this thing's even going to be that big anyway, especially with yeah. our previous tours and stuff. I mean, I may have said this exact statement on an episode I deleted with Kitto Tool, but <laughs> being the sometimes host of a pun-based game show called Pun It, go and check it out, links down below, I can say with some authority that this pun is awful. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. It, just in, 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 in the same regard as give my regards to Broad Street, I imagine very few people at the time of a certain age got this, this, this reference at all. And it's classic vaudeville out-of-touch macker. Like, yeah, mate, everyone's still using this outdated idiom. I can't say that I ever understood it until I finally took the time to look it up recently. And it, it doesn't... It's not a clever pun. It's just a pun. It's a pun to exist as a pun. Yeah, maybe like some intern in like a workshopping room just said it whilst Paul was throwing paper balls in, into a bin one day. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go with that one. It's pretty good. You surprised he never went with live and let die? Oh, good God. Oof. My God. <laughs> Except people people looking at it, since it's spelled the same way, might not have gotten it, so you'd have to spell it like L-Y-V-E, live and let die. Paul is live is much better. That's funny. That's actually <laughs> funny. Well, yeah, in conjunction with the album cover, it's perfect. Yeah. It's the most you know, kind of kind of Beatle nostalgically wanky offy thing they could have possibly done. Let's also quickly talk about the album artwork here as well. Would this cover necessarily attract your eye in a record shop back when you could go in record shops, and would it assist in your decision to purchase this album? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, the font is just spectacular. <laughs> it's uh. I feel like it makes sense that it is the live document in conjunction 
with a tour promoting Flowers in the Dirt, I feel like it's it's kind of got a similar sort of breezy, sort of windy sort of, sort of landscape going on. Um, it, you know, it's colorful. He can't say he didn't, you know, try out the whole palette there. Ooh, but I, it, it's... I hate, uh, I hate this, dude. I really do. It's better or worse than McCartney 3. Yeah, so folks, uh, just off air, me and me and Dylan were talking about the McCartney Three album cover by Edward Ruscher, and I mentioned that I've I've also said this on my recent appearance on the Blotto Beatles podcast uh, that will be coming out in a, in a in a few weeks, I imagine. And it just reminded me of a PowerPoint presentation program, but the font here again, it looks like there's some kind of cheap computer, like like nineties program here that has created this really awful color gradient it's really really terrible and i don't know why the art style looks like someone drew it with a a sparkler on the fourth of july or something you know it's like you know when you get a sparkler and you can kind of draw things in the air yeah also uh, just before we go into the songs let's just do a quick roundup of the lineup on lead vocals, acoustic, electric, and bass, uh, guitars, piano, and keyboards, you know, doing everything. He's not just the bass player in a band anymore. He is the one-man show, Paul McCartney. On backing vocals and keyboards, rather crucially, we have Linda McCartney. Then mm-hmm. on acoustic, electric, and bass guitars, we have... Uh, oh, and backing vocals as well, of course, um, with kind of shared lead vocals on Ebony and Ivory as well. We have Hamish Stewart got Robbie McIntosh on electric guitar and backing vocals as well. we got our man Wixie, Paul Wickens, on keyboards. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently he does back, uh, backing vocals as well. I, I don't really know on which ones he does that, but I'll take that word for it. He's also the main kind of musical supervisor and arranger for the tour. You know, he's the guy who helps Paul kind of during the, the uh, re- rehearsal sessions more more than anyone else. And finally, on percussion and drums, we got Chris Witten, who's been with Paul since the Chopper days by this point. So they've mm-hmm. been going back quite, quite a way. And with that, let's begin with the first disc of Paul McCartney's Tripping the Live Fantastic. And starting things off rather weirdly, Dylan. The opening track on this record is not actually a song and is instead a 38 second clip called Showtime. And I think we're just going to play the whole thing now. Showtime! Okay, here we go. just heard there this is literally just over half a minute of the sounds of mccartney and co taking to the stage and it starts off a lot quieter than you might expect as it begins with just some light scuffling and shuffling and then it transitions to the sounds of the band running onto the stage and the crowd starts going crazy and paul is a showman why not build 30 seconds of tension kind of in a similar way he did to the start of wings over america but dylan should this have just been the opening for figure of eight and just have figure of eight be 38 seconds longer yeah 
and I think that it probably could have been about 20 seconds shorter. I don't truly see the need for it. I, I totally understand building up the anticipation, but personally, there's a few live albums out there that I really love that have pulled this trick before, and I've never personally been a fan of it. Just tack it on to the first track. You know, keep it 15 seconds max and just go for it. And I think it might also, like, break a few hearts when someone might pick up and go, oh, Paul's got a new song called Showtime. You know, there might not be a time duration on the sign, you know? And then it's just, ooh, what's this? Is it, like, something from McCartney 3? This sounds really kind of out there and experimental, you know? And as we'll get to later on this disc, uh, when you actually do get a new McCartney song, it's not that good anyway. So you're disappointed on multiple levels. Oh, I'm looking forward to what that one is. I've got my suspicions. <laughs> Again, I'm not saying that this has to be here at all. I just think it's funny that it does get its own title more than anything. Because even like Can You Take Me Back from the White Album, a much better composition didn't get a title on the fucking record. No, I was just going to say the only thing I could think of was maybe it was just an excuse to make a little more money. Like, yeah, we'll tack another track on there, give it a, a Paul McCartney songwriting credit, and for every copy sold, they make a little money for that song. Yeah, but they could have just included another song that they actually played live or used the audio of him just actually coming on stage. It seems so unnecessary. It must have been created in post as well, or from an amalgamation of performances, because it's the only track in the liner notes that doesn't have a single designated location as well, so it's probably the only element of kind of mad Professor McCartney on this album, really. Uh, let's, sure. Let's, let's move on to the actual first song, though, from Tripping the Life Fantastic, and it's the second single from Flowers in the Dirt. It was recorded at the Ahoy Sport Palais Arena in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, on 10th of November 1989. Dylan, this is... Figure of eight. just touch on this but i can distinctly remember all the way back to when i did this podcast for the very first time yep i was looking at all these clips and I, I think i listened to it as well and i heard figure of eight for the very first time and i wasn't ready for it i, I hadn't <laughs> grown into the right kind of mccarty fan that that could handle that kind of pandora's box of music and again classic casual fan moment but 
I still think it's really ballsy that he chose to open his comeback tour with a single from the, the new album, especially when he is going so balls to the wall with Beatles songs on this set list. I reckon, you know, if I was there and I was at the point where I was when I first started this podcast, I probably would have been one of those faces in the crowd that he would have seen a face of indifference. <laughs> But I love it now. I'm, I'm I'm really happy with this one. Um, it's much closer to the, to the to the single version than the album version, which I'm very happy about. What about you, though, dude? I think it's a great opener, and, and and I totally understand the confusion that a lot of people in the audience may have felt. Maybe a lot of people who picked up the record felt, especially if they weren't familiar with Flowers or or this single. And I I don't know off the top of my head. I don't recall this being a high charting single by any means um so yeah i think my brave face was the only one that made any sort of dent i think it's ballsy i I think it's a ballsy move and a ballsy song so i personally love it i wish that he would throw throw out a curveball like this these days i i think that everything about it it's such an energetic performance like you said it's it's closer to the single version especially vocally the vocal here is much better than the vocal on the album and i'd say it's on par with the single vocal i mean chris witten is is crushing it on the drums here great slide solo paul's bass tone is super thick i i think this is honestly i can't think of a better opener in this entire set list so i i, I get the overall mindset or the confused mindset but I think it's perfect. I always loved it, and when I revisited it, I was happy to see that I still loved it. See, it's funny you should say there's nothing else that you'd pick from the set list to open the gig with. I would have gone with My Brave Face. Um, I think this could have been a, a, um, late in the set list in, in the way that My Brave Face wasn't still been just as enjoyable. I guess I'm more of a, you know the money man in the suits, and I'm just thinking... Well, you know, I've I've got a cigar in my mouth. I like, ah, put the hit single at the start of the gig, kid. You know, that's <laughs> that's how I kind of feel about this. I'm also glad you brought up his voice as well, because like one of the most fucking talked about things on a Paul McCartney podcast at any one time is going to be Paul McCartney's voice. Like, you know, somewhere in the world at any one time, a Beatles podcaster is talking about the state of Paul McCartney's voice somewhere. <laughs> you know, morning, noon, and night, and it's a very strong vocal in this opening one. However, I think Paul McCartney's vocal is more controversial in this period than it is now. And we're going to see across a lot of these songs, this kind of thing he does, like that. Uh, And he's really, really stretching it. And I don't know whether he's trying to sound young. I don't know whether he's trying to infuse a bit of semi-little Richardness into everything. But... Um, the songs where he does it less, I enjoy. I, I've got a lot of opinions about his voice on this record that we will also talk about in a lot of songs, particularly on the very next song. But I, I will say right up front, I think what's going on is a little bit, cer- certainly not having the practice, you know, not having sung consistently in big open arenas for over 10 years Mm. and him trying to kind of reach back to that wings ever raspiness that he, 
he could hit, but he's reaching a point now where he's not going to hit it consistently well. And, you know, his voice was still, I think, very good around this time. And even three years before this at the Prince's Trust, he broke out Long Tall Sally. He's singing it at 44 years old, and he's singing it really fucking well. Here, though, and again, I can't stress enough, I think on figure of eight, it, it might be the strongest vocal you know i don't want to commit Mm. to that but it's certainly one of them across across this album but yeah a lot of times yeah there's that very forced raspiness where there's just not enough of the actual note or any discernible tone whereas in the 70s you know between 76 and 79 there's always the note there with it and there's always the classic mccartney timbre the mccartney tone that's there here yeah it's not so much here especially on the outro of a song like jet maybe uh the next song we're going to talk about it was recorded at the wembley arena on the 17th of jan 1990 let's have a listen Dylan, I've spoken an awful lot about my thoughts on Jet quite recently. Yeah, your favourite song. Uh, yeah, I spoke about it on Ridiculous Rock Records Reviews podcast. I've got a Listen With Sam Band on the Run episode that I've got to pull my finger out of my ass and fucking record soon and just get that done so I can talk about <laughs> Venus and Mars. So I'm going to let you take the floor here with this one. Talk to me about Jet. <laughs> well, I love Jet. Um, I've always, you know, I'm, I'm just a sheeple. Um, <laughs> I've always loved Jet. I think it's I think it's a great rocker. I know the lyrics don't mean anything, but um, great song, fantastic song. I will I will, <laughs> I will say um, I have always loved the album vocal more than any other vocal. Yes, yeah. but especially the way the word jet is saying with the really deep voices, that deep sort of timbre that he's got going on there. But that being said, his vocal here, it's amazing. So 12, 13 years after this, he does the Back in the World tour, which, you know, I know you haven't gotten to it yet, but there's the Back in the U.S. album and the Back in the World album. In general, his voice sounds better on that tour at 59, 60 years old than 
It does on this record, and I don't know if it's just because he trained more for it, he was feeling more ready for it, but he sings better singing Jet on that record at 60 years old than he does here before he's 50. And it's still not as good as the Wings Over America vocal, which I don't think is as good as the album vocal. So overall, there's just a lot going on here. Uh, it, it's it's too much of like you said that ah, without enough of the the note and the timbre and then for me too and this is going to be another thing that the that your listeners are going to get tired of me saying uh, but this is the first of many many songs where that 80s flangy chorus guitar is a little too suspect for me um, <laughs> so Overall, I like this song, but this is probably easily my least favorite available version of this song for public consumption. Uh, Maybe I haven't gone back to the Good Evening New York City recording in quite some time, but I know for certain that it's not as good as Back in the U.S. or Wings Over America or the album. So that's where I'm at with with this version of Jet. We've had quite a disparity between uh, the first and second song here so far. It's quite funny. (laughs) One thing I realised about halfway through this song, though, is why this tour is so special uh, in retrospect. Mm -hmm. We've got backing vocals from Linda fucking McCartney on this track here. And Mm -hmm. her doing her classic atonal whimsy. uh, it's, It's ace. It really is. It's top class stuff. And because of that, it actually sounds more like Wings than any of the subsequent renditions after Linda's tragic death, you know? Mm. Yeah. Another issue I've got, I guess, would be sequencing. This Mm. is the first time he's played it since Wings Over America. Wings didn't play it in their 79 tour. Thank Mm -hmm. God. I'm not (laughs) going to... Especially with with what they did to No Words, you know? (laughs) I always prefer Jet being a part of Venus and Mars rock show. It's just it, it's the best way for me to to process Jet. We've already mentioned Mary Mary Poppins. It's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, as it were. For mm. me, I much would have preferred uh, Venus and Mars rock show here. I know he did bring it back for uh, uh, one of his later tours, one of one of his much more recent ones. Yeah, and. The full version of Jet just wears on me after a while. So having a version hmm. with Rock Show and Venus and Mars, whereby they kind of truncate about two minutes off it, that's fine by me. <laughs> well, we differ there, but I will say, given my overall thoughts on this particular version, I probably also wouldn't have minded a truncated version of this. Next up, Dylan, we have something you would not see in a modern day McCartney show. Not only do we have a third solo Paul McCartney song (laughs) in a row, but it's also the second from the new album. It was recorded at the Ballet Omnisport de Basset in Paris, Gay Paris in France. Oui, oui. uh, Oui, oui. Uh, And took place on the 10th of October 1989. Shockingly, Dylan, the next song (laughs) is Rough Ride. Bonsoir Paris! Nice. 
needed loving I needed a friend I needed something that would be there in the end All the love fight to heaven I want to get inside What can I do? this one of course like, I love this song and it's an underrated gem from the Flowers in the Dirt album you shut your mouth you can let me speak no uh, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> I, I, I have my continue oh no don't break my heart on this one Dylan please I love this song I'm worried that you are gonna have the same kind of lackluster response that the audience has uh, <laughs> when they hear this I can't believe they include like like the audience kind of, kind of going like you, you can actually hear the kind of hesitation in their applause there. <laughs> it's certainly not the biggest ever. Like Paul shouting "Bonsoir Paris" gets a bigger cheer than the intro of. <laughs> Clearly, it wasn't the, the biggest seller in France. But uh, you know, what about you, dude? You know, is this too many of the new songs too early in the set list? Not only am I not going to break your heart i i think i'm about to make you a very happy man i feel like i shouldn't like this song there is so much in here that i generally don't like between the prominent high-pitched snare drum the synth tones but i don't know what it is i love this song i've always loved this song And maybe it's just because those things are being incorporated into this very slinky, kind of harder-hitting song, but it really works for me. And I would be absolutely elated if I ever got to see this live. And I get that it's not maybe compositionally his, his finest moment, but I don't know. I think it's really cool. I think the synthesized horns are a bit much on this live version and I and therefore that's not the only reason why I think the studio version is better I think I think there's a couple different reasons but overall I mean I think it's a strong song and I think it's a strong live number too so you know I can understand maybe people being a little suspect or feeling a little suspect that this is like you said the third straight solo song to open the set and the second kind of deep cut, you know, it's it's a new song, but still a deep cut because this this wasn't a single, <laughs> right? Was this even a B side? Was it a single? I think Rough Ride was a single. If I, uh, okay, man, man, man looks something up on internet just. To... But <laughs> but for for as little as anyone may have known, Figure of Eight, I think that Rough Ride was even less known. So I understand all that, but man, I think it's a hell of a performance, and I I think it's a fun little song. So may your little heart be ever comforted in knowing that your opinion is shared by someone else. Uh, It wasn't uh, a single, sadly enough. Okay, I didn't think so. It definitely could have been one of those like only in France singles, though. You know, like oh, you know, there was, you know, there was a, a, a Mexican EP called Rough Ride or something. There's always those great ones you see on eBay every now and then. But yeah, you you would never see this today. I mean, no. yeah, you know, Jet is Jet, and it's one of his big hits. You know, it's it's from Band on the Run. But 
you know, for me, as someone always looking for slightly more esoteric McCartney content, this is just so refreshing. Mm-hmm. Again, we get some quirky Linda synthy backing vocals, which was, again, real treat for me. Particularly during the, the breakdown towards the end, because there's a spontaneous little noise she makes, where she goes like, yeah, like that. Which sounds suspiciously like the sample of her vocal on the Flowers in the Dirt era bonus instrumental track called Peacocks. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think there's... I smell some fuckery going on here, Dylan. I, I, I smell a rat. <laughs> I, I reckon there's a link somewhere. <laughs> when I go around to Paul's house for uh, to uh, celebrate Christmas, I'm sure I'll ask him then. Yeah, well, get on that. I mean, it's Thanksgiving has already passed. I hope that's not real, real turkey there, sir. With our fourth song, we're going to finally see Paul give in to Temptation and play a Beatles number. Recorded on the, the 17th of October, 89, and took place at the Westfalenhalle in Dortmund, Germany. This is Got To Get You Into My Life. Okay, we'd like to carry on with a song here, which uh, Robbie wrote this morning, actually, on his way here. And it's a little song you probably won't have heard before. It was like this. I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there Another road, but maybe I could see another kind of mind Best bit about this song, dude, is the very start. Paul's generally funny little bit where he introduces this as one that guitarist Robbie McIntosh wrote <laughs> that very day. Love it. Yes. Straight away, it's far stronger than the one we heard uh, opening the Wing 79 tour. I know they opened with that song because it had recently been covered by Earth, Wind and Fire. But I'm sure in no uncertain terms that this is how he wished the 79 final incarnation of Wings would have represented this song. The crowd love it. Paul is clearly pumped at the end doing doing his little (laughs) and I am sure he would have been very satisfied with how this whole thing went. Well, we've got our first major disagreement of the podcast, it seems. Hit me. His vocal during the verses, extremely strong, extremely good. And as soon as he gets to that chorus, he's doing that exact I mean, the 79 vocal is far superior, as is having the horns rather than these terrible fake horns that open this up. And this song, for me, is over as soon as it begins. Those horns sound awful. You listen to newer versions of him doing this, and... Thankfully, Wix has found some new plugins that sound a lot more real. Because, uh, man, I can't. It, it, Paul's bass playing on this is great, and other than that, and and the verse vocal, there's actually not a lot for me here. Because that that fun little '80s guitar comes up again in the guitar break. Between that, the chorus vocal, those horns, uh, this this ain't it for me. Very interesting. Would you have preferred maybe? Good Day Sunshine instead, 
maybe he wouldn't have done such an annoying vocal with a song like that, you know? Yeah, I just, I'm sure it's one of those things that sounded totally fine when you were there at the show. You know, and I hate to say it sounds, you know, terrible. I mean, I take this over his 2018 version of it where he can't sing it at all, but... Uh, yeah, I, I probably would have preferred something like Good Day Sunshine. And I I have heard the version from this tour, and I think it's superior than this. And, you know, and Got to Get You Into My Life Anyway is a song that I love, but I don't think I love it as much as other people. I think if I were ranking all the songs on Revolver, it would probably fall in my lower half, which really only speaks to the quality of the songs on Revolver in general. But, um,. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I actually, I think it's funny you say that. I think the 79 version is much, much superior to this because he can sing the chorus and the real horns do it justice. These fake uh, stale horns, keyboard horns, don't do it for me at all. Play it to me, Thaddeus. Yeah, you know, you are, you, you, you are right. Having the uh, the live horns does add... A certain je ne sais quoi, shall we say. Yeah. Now, this one was recorded in Germany. Yes. Hey. Well, <laughs> weirdly enough, like, was this song chosen and sequenced in this way? Because at the end of the last song, which was recorded in Paris, Paul ends and says, Danke schön, as opposed to something like Merci. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that was like a little joke in the, uh, in the studio when they were finally putting the uh, track list together. Also, just to say, I don't think all of the songs that Wings did in the 79 tour that he does here are done in a way to kind of repair those gigs in Paul's mind. But, you know, he certainly had the Wings arrangements of these songs in mind whenever he went, sure. he, he went back to them, definitely. Yeah. Speaking of which, next up, we're going to go back to the Wings hit 1973 album once again, this time with the title track. This was recorded on the 16th of January 1990 and was once again held at Wembley Arena in London. Uh, As you may have guessed, this is Bang on the Run. Dylan, hate to flog a dead horse, but fuck me, is this set list packed with music I would much prefer Paul to play. Hmm. Uh, just recently I did an episode with Ken Michaels where we discussed our top McCartney likes and dislikes and a criticism we did agree on was 
that his wider catalogue is not represented, as you mentioned earlier. And, Mm -hmm. of course, in 1990, he has a much smaller songbook to represent, but we're getting such a good spread so far. He's giving me the show of my dreams, but two years before I was born, sadly. (laughs) On the subject of repeating previously made points as well, we are oh so fortunate to have Linda on this track as well, because... Her plinky-plonky synthetastic moog is so nostalgic for me, and it has a kitsch charm that cannot be artificially generated. Well, not only that, but vocally, she's propping him up on this song. I hear him struggling quite a bit vocally on this song, you know, spe- especially in the the third part of the song once it breaks into rain exploded with a mighty crack you know it's, you know began to settle down like he is having a rough go of things hitting those vocals but she comes in multiple times to double him on something mm-hmm. certainly to sing the harmonies um, people can say what they want about linda i'm not gonna sit here and, and make the argument that she is a world-class vocalist um but in, in a point that I will further make later in this episode. I always have loved how her voice uh, goes with his Mm. and how it blends with his. And I want to say a few things. And let me say, first off, before I say any of this, so nothing is misconstrued here. The song Band on the Run is most likely, for me, a top 10 Paul McCartney song. I don't care how overplayed it is, how overpraised it is. I I think it's a miraculous piece of songwriting, arrangement, recording. I absolutely adore this song. Like Jet, I think this may be my least favorite commercially available recording of this song. The synth horns, once again, too much. The chorus flangey guitar is too much. I think his vocal is struggling. And is there room for me to make a hot take on this show, Sam? Go right ahead. Okay. I respect the hell out of Hamish Stewart as a vocalist, as a musician. I want to say as a man, but I don't know anything about him, so I'm not going to go that far. I'm sure he's a great person. Uh, He seems to be very smiley all the time, which I appreciate. I might be the only McCartney fan out there who generally does not care for the blend of Paul and Hamish's singing. And I think it's too much here. Especially in the first section, the never seeing no one when yeah. he comes in with the harmony. Because the thing is, Hamish has a very, very distinct singing style and a mm. very distinct timbre. He's very smooth and he's very round. And I have never thought, with some exceptions, of course, and even some exceptions on this album, But in general, I've never found that that blend works particularly well for me. When Hamish sings by, like when he sings by himself, you know, and and his own songs, I think he's totally fine. But overall, I'm not a fan of it. And uh, again, kind of like Jet, 
or got to get you into my life on this record, it takes me out of the song too early. So I, I hate to be uh, a negative uh, rainy cloud coming after all of your positivity, but uh, that's that's how I feel about this particular recording of this song. Yeah, I mean, McCartney's vocal again. You are you you are right. Is particularly egregious on this song, but I never really thought of Hamish in that in that way. But just going off your point, I reckon it'll probably come down to the fact that Denny Lane was not a very distinctive voice in the in the iconic Wings harmony, and he was almost there to kind of blend Paul into Linda and kind of be that that real connective tissue. Like especially when you listen to something like "I Am Your Singer" or "Hey Diddle." Or you know, Ram, where it is just Paul and Linda. Like you, you know, you you can definitely tell what Denny brought to that. Well, absolutely. And I think in general, the way that Paul's voice is, I think that Paul tends to blend well with more quirky voices, such as Linda McCartney, Denny Lane, John Lennon, George Harrison, mm. Hamish Stewart. Again a very, very smooth, slick voice, again, with a very, very round sort of tone. And it sticks out to me kind of like a sore thumb. There's, again, with some exceptions, there's not much of a blend there. And Paul Paul walks such an amazing line, you know, between being, you know, he can do the smooth thing, he can be raspy when he wants to. He can be a balladeer. He can be a rocker. There, he can do so much with his voice. But I think when you introduce again another very sort of silky, you know, prominent voice to the matter, it doesn't really work for me. And there's a lot of times on on this record and and some other recordings where it's just too much, you know, because. John has a very reedy voice, almost a very thin voice, of certainly a very powerful voice, but, you know, the greatest sound that's ever existed is the blend between Paul McCartney and John Lennon. And same thing with George. You know, George has, you know, kind of a nasally interesting voice. Lenny, Linda has a very off-kilter mm. voice. And like you said, Denny works basically exclusively to blend. And I think Denny has a fine singing voice in his own right, as you can hear on the songs he sings lead on. But the the sound of those wings harmonies are the distinct voices of Paul and Linda and then Denny acting as this extra sort of glue. Hamish to me is like, if you're tr- you're trying to glue something, but then you just pour the glue on top of everything... <laughs> And it's not acting as an adhesive as it is so much an actual visual thing. And I don't really dig that. So, yeah. so I, I feel. Like, I like the analogy there, though. I'm picturing lots, <laughs> I'm picturing lots of hardened PVA glue. Where it's more like <laughs> the structure of the PVA is keeping things together rather than the adhesive, like you say. That's quite funny. Well, following on, we have our second Beatles song. And... The only song to be released as a technically a single from this <laughs> album. And this was recorded at, on the 30th of June, 1990, and took place at the Nebworth Music Festival here in the UK. And this particular year was described as some as the best British concert of all time. 
Again, mm. lofty praise indeed. So, you know, I'm sure Paul picked a prime cut classic Beatles song to represent this gig on this album. Oh, no, wait. He chose Birthday. really was a one-off <laughs> this was the first time we're going to step away from the average set list and the continuity there as I mentioned before it was uh, a separate single on the 8th of October 1990 in the UK and in the US albeit only as a cassette on the 16th of October but it's a shame that it came out then and not concurrently with the UK as the 8th of October is John Lennon's birthday and it, it would have been John's 50th you know, you get it? Mm. Birthday, birthday. But um, I see what you did there. Right, hey, hi But, Dylan, one of the B-sides to this single was the infamous P.S. Love Me Do. Uh, <laughs> ha- have you had the misfortune of hearing this song? Oh, I have heard P.S. Love Me Do. And, um, actually, I mean, speaking of Hamish, is it Hamish who sings the extremely egregious No, that no, that's no, that's no, that sounds like a Paul falsetto to me. That does it has to be. Either way, it's terrible. Uh, as is and that entire. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I love our mutual friend Andy Nichols very much. Ho- you know, co-host of the other Paul McCartney podcast, um, <laughs> and. and uh, Love, love him very dearly, very nice guy, very kind enough to have me on the show. Um, great person in general, but I was absolutely horrified when he came on your show to defend P.S. Love Me Do. Uh, I think it's maybe the single most major misstep, the major musical misstep in Paul's solo career because even a song like get enough which i am not a fan of whatsoever you can at least make an argument for that end section when the soundscape opens up and the other instruments come in there's nothing about ps love me do that i think is at all acceptable or listenable oh maybe like let's get the original ps love me do vocal tapes and we'll run them through the auto tuner like get enough Stop. You're going to make me throw up. You know. This love me do, love me do. You know, it's like really, <sighs> yeah. Terrible. Not the best, is it? But the Nebworth gig was a really interesting crowd, i got to admit. 
Uh, I can't wait to talk about it in more detail uh, on part one of what will probably be our off-the-ground episodes. Mm. Real star-studded event, though, dude. Uh, Paul performed alongside Pink Floyd, Cliff Richard and the Shadows, Tears for Fears, Eric Clapton, Dire Straits, Elton John, Robert Plant with Jimmy Page, uh, Status Quo, Phil Collins and Genesis. Paul's set was between Phil Collins and Status Quo and did a quick set of coming up back in the USSR. I saw her standing there. We got married, birthday, let it be, live and let die. If I were not upon the stage, hey Jude, a medley of Strawberry Fields Forever help and give Pete's a chance, which I know he did at some points during the 1989-1990 world tour as well. I believe that appears in the Get Back film, if I'm not mistaken. I might I might be though. Who knows? Who cares? We're not talking about that today. And who he also did... Uh, who? What, what those idiots say, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then we had Yesterday and Can't Buy Me Love, which is a pretty fucking sick set list, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, I imagine some of these songs will be amongst the bonus tracks that we're going to discuss during the second part of this discussion. Would you call the Beatles version of Birthday a highlight of the White Album? I love Birthday. You know, (laughs) I, I, I look, I know it seems like there's a subsection of Beatles songs that are true. Love it or hate it. It seems like Drive My Car is in that category. Certainly Yellow Submarine is in that category. I have a friend back home in Rhode Island who viscerally hates this song. (laughs) And he loves the Beatles as much as anyone else. You know, he, he knows the whole, he knows the whole catalog. He worships them, but he hates birthday. I love birthday. I think birthday is a great, rock and roll song i think the guitar riff is great i love that you can hear the camaraderie between paul and john in it there's a lot there for me to like i'm gonna take a a wild guess based off of your tone and inflection that you don't feel the same oh it's it is it is not the best example of spontaneity in the studio with the Beatles. Like, <laughs> give me Las Paranoias or, you know, something like oh, that. Oh, no. Over Stop. this any day. Stop. Or save the last dance for me. I'd rather okay. listen to than than the... Fine. Than... It's, yeah, those are both good, but come on. Great. It, 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 all right, so, so if we may segue into this live version, look, I'll give you this. This version, I think, is terrible. Uh, you know, the guitar tones up front are terrible. It's it's fake. It's overprocessed. It's the absolute worst example of, you know, that '80s guitar tone that I'm talking about. And I know that maybe maybe our our friend Ken Michaels is listening, and he hasn't liked me talking about the '80s this way. And look, I, you know. There's things about every decade of music that I like and dislike. I'm not trying to disparage the 80s as a whole, but no, in you, general... You, you are right, though. You are right. There is a certain ZZ Top status quo-ness to the, to the guitar sound. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's the effect. It's this weird, flangy, chorusy thing that is across so much music, especially made in that decade. Again, it's not to disparage the quality of some particular songs that may be used on or the actual parts that are being played 
whether you like this song or not, the original recording, those guitars sound great. These guitars, it's it's distorted, but it's also clean at the same time. You know, it's like if you were trying to plug in an electric guitar into GarageBand using their samples and you just didn't change anything, uh, it's terrible. And especially because the riff itself is so repetitive and and <laughs> monotonous, like when you just get bashed over the head with it in this tone, it becomes too much. And then on top of that, what I think is a great Paul vocal on the White Album, especially with John's fantastic low harmony under it, does Paul actually hit a single note in this song or is it all gravel the entire time? There's, no. there's no discernible, it, it, this is all, say it's your birthday. And I will say that I've never really loved any live version of this song because he, I just, he can't, he's either, he can't do the vocal or he's always tried to do it another way. So this is really disappointing for me, because I really like the original so much. <laughs> it's very crisp. It's 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 attempting to be too perfect. It sounds like Eric Johnson is on guitar or something. <laughs> I do like Wixie's little kind of Nicky Hopkins esque piano part that uh, comes in. That kind of like blah 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 blah. I was like, oh, that's kind of it's kind of cute. The most cynical part of me is very annoyed by this song in general, but. The fact that it was a single to commemorate John's 50th birthday is a bit too sentimental for me to resist, really. Sure, so I get I'm, it. I'm not going to be too harsh. Speaking of sentimental tosh, though, we're going to press on to a song that is honestly performed a lot better than you'd think it would be. It was recorded on the 8th of November 1989 and took place at the Ahoy Sport Ballet in Rotterdam again. In the Netherlands, this is Ebony and Ivory. things first Dylan where do you stand on the ultimate uh, love it or hate it Paul McCartney number <sighs> to say that I hate this song um, might be a little strong I hate I hate to use the word hate but for me a good sentiment makes not a good song I have never enjoyed this song I've tried 
so dearly. I've tried so hard because, you know, every now and then you come around to a song that you didn't like before. You know, I was never, literally up until last year, I never liked Wonderful Christmas Time. And then it just hit me. I don't know what it was. And maybe that, maybe that moment will eventually come with Ebony and Ivory. But I don't like this song at all. And I think it's extremely unfortunate that it's one of the few non-Flowers solo songs. It's just so unbearably smooth for me. And then when you, you know, when you incorporate Hamish's extremely smooth vocal, like I was talking about before. And I also don't know how appropriate it is to have Hamish be singing it. Um, you know, it's it's not that two white people can't sing about <laughs> was, the dangers was, of racism. I was say, he's, he's not I mean, dressed up I'm, like Al Jolson, you know, come on. Well, no, it's... It, Certainly, it's it's a good enough sentiment. It's like anyone can and should be able to sing this song because it, it is about, you know, understanding and, and peace and harmony, and that's great. But I think the initial point of the song was that it was a white and a black man singing it together and showing that unity. This, I don't know, maybe if you're being optimistic, you can say, oh, well, it just takes on a different meaning to white people singing it in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters and sure that's fine that's great it's still not a good song and the synth horns once again show up they're terrible i think everything about it's pretty bad to be honest oh see this is one where i think the synth horn style really works to its advantage <laughs> i wouldn't have Assume that Ebony and Ivory would be an easy song for Wixie and Paul to arrange, but I think this is flawlessly executed. I think Ugh. it embodies the cheesy, gooey pop that is the original recording of Ebony and Ivory. That kind of wet squelch sound, that kind of wow, wow. It sounds like it's like underwater almost. I recently just did an episode of War and Peace with Tom Hunyadi. Uh, uh, and, you know, we, we were kind of mashing Tug of War and Pipes Peace together into one album. And I took Ebony and Ivory off the main album and had it as a non-album single with uh, the other Steve Wonder track, What's That You're Doing? Mm-hmm. And then rather than deleting it off said playlist, I just popped it on the end because I was technically still keeping it. And so every time I listened through the album, first thing I'd hear right at the end would be Ebony and Ivory. And... I'm not saying this is a case where an earworm has turned a song I hate into a song I like, but I've definitely been vibing with Ebony and Ivory a lot more of late. And I've got to disagree with you on the uh, Hamish vocal. I think he's awesome here. You know, This, to me, is an example of why Paul wanted to have him on his team. And... I don't think this is true, but you know this is an example for me of why other people consider this to be the best lineup of the post Wings Paul McCartney touring band. You know he's certainly a more directly active presence here because of that distinctive voice, like you say. I don't know. I feel like he's a little bit more fun on stage here than Wings than Denny ever was with Wings in the seventies. You know, and when he does the Stevie solo bits, the audience love it. They're loving it, man. They're clapping along. And what I thought he did well, old Hamish, was that he does 
the best possible job of delivering a vocal that's kind of faithful to Stevie's. It's kind of powerful mm-hmm. in, in its own right, you know, a little showcase moment for him. But it's also somehow able to not upstage the boss man while he's doing it as well. So, you know, maybe that level of calculatedness is what, you know, manifests in your dislike of it. But, hmm. yeah, a real disagreement there rather than just a kind of arbitrary uh, good v bad. We got deep there, folks. Um well, I'm very. I you know, I'm happy. I'm happy you like it. You know, I and I, I don't ever want to discourage anyone for liking or or disliking a song. Opin- opinions are opinions, and I I think that there's certainly you know an artistic argument to be made for this song. But the sheer, the the soundscape and the overall vibe of it, it just doesn't resonate with me. But I'm I'm genuinely happy that you feel that way. Next up. And my golly gosh, we have another song from Flowers in the Dirt. Fucking hell. This was recorded on the 16th of Jan, 1990, and is the second song taken from the Wembley gig in London, the same one that Band on the Run was taken from on this album. This is We Got Married. We made love in the afternoon Found the flat After that We got married Working hard For the dream Scoring goals with the other team Times were bad We were glad We got married I love the way you open up your arms When you find a meeting of the minds Just as well Love was all we ever wanted It was all we ever had So Dylan, despite no single ever coming out for this There actually was a music video and it featured a lot of live footage of Paul on this tour, but not necessarily footage of, of him doing this song. And the montage kind of reminded me of, you know when the Beatles used footage from Hey Bulldog and re-edited it for Lady Madonna? Yes. Like, it has pangs of that all over. In terms of I the track, it's... Oh, yeah, it's great. Um, the Beatles do a video for Lady Madonna, a little promo. Oh, no, I've, to, seen, um, I've seen that. I haven't seen oh, the yeah. We Got Married video. Yeah, there's these awful little inserts where Paul's clearly singing on a soundstage to no one, literally for <laughs> no one, uh, and then he intercuts it with, with like these huge crowds, and it, it feels like a Power Rangers thing where, where they're cutting back between the footage of the people on the ground with real buildings and then the people in giant rubber suits treading on cardboard buildings you know it's got it's got that jarring quality to it in terms of the track itself though it's at least as good as the version on the album and i might even be tempted to say to say that it's a little better i definitely think it's better yeah thanks to ken michaels i've become a huge flowers fan and most of this album most of the album was recorded with the people who are appearing on this stage but they are just able to nail all of this fresh material Mm. And, you know, in the, in the sense of plugging the album, 
they're mostly faithful, but there's usually something, just a little tweak to keep it fresh. And the and the heavy extended jam at the end of this song, where it literally feels like Dave Gilmore is in the room, is mm-hmm. a great example of how this current McCartney touring band really knows how to keep things interesting. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that you just said that the session band was the live band here because obviously this song was a part of the david foster sessions from 84 of course um, yeah so so Hey-o. no but 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 it's but it's interesting because when they're playing the other songs from the record that they did play on they're they're mostly playing it safe and and that's not meant to be a, a bad or a good thing it just it is what it is for for the most part the other songs from flowers are pretty played uh pretty faithfully and this is played faithfully too but because it was a different band i i think you're right i think it it has this extra little kick because they're interpreting it from someone else or, or from from other players and you know i i go back and forth a bit on this song at the moment i really like it like i know that some of the lyrics are a little uh, testy maybe at best but the overall, uh, hey, yeah. the I think the melodies are really strong in this song. I've always loved the arrangement, and man, I just think that everything that the band adds to this, like when it goes into the first sort of heavier section, they hit so fucking hard, and it sounds amazing. And there's a rockiness to it that, like, well, where was this, like? in that second section of Band on the Run. Like, where where was this in other parts of the show that are supposed to rock? Like, they really rock on this song. And it must have sounded awesome in person. Mm. And I love that once that heavy section comes in, those guitars kind of stay lingering throughout the next verses. It, it's a lot more menacing, I think, than the original. And even the fake horns. I think the fake trumpet sounds pretty good here. You know, the dynamics throughout that that solo that you were talking about are extremely strong. It's really musical. Wix is crushing it. Chris Witten, again, is doing an amazing job on the drums. I think this is easily a highlight of the record. And I hope that for anyone who actually got to see this in person who is familiar with the record... I, I hope that they really appreciated this too, because I can't imagine that this wasn't a highlight of the show too. I couldn't have put any of that better myself, dude. I really could. <laughs> I've been loving this song though since the moment I heard it. But any song that's got a possible cheeky Paul McCartney sex joke is always going to go down well with me. So. <laughs> um, next up, we have our second kind of non-track, and one that certainly again, breaks the integrity of this being an accurate representation of this tour, as it's literally part of a recorded sound check. It was recorded on the 2nd of January 1990 and was taken at a gig at the NEC Arena from a certain city here in the UK. My hometown, Birmingham. Not Birmingham, Birmingham. Um, This is Inner City Madness.
Dylan, my friend Tom does a show called Alphabetallica, and he's recently done an episode on these unique musical doodles that Metallica would kind of uniquely write as a cool little treat for each city they'd they'd visit on a on a tour. And mm-hmm. especially with other songs that we're going to have later on this album, I'm wondering if this was a similar feature of this tour, or at least in the sound checks, like did each town get its own version of Inner City Madness? Like, did they each get a unique one? Or did they all kind of stretch their legs open with this track in the same way every time just to, like, test the equipment? How how do you interpret this track? I don't really know. And that would be very, very interesting to know as someone who has been through many sound checks of varying degrees I can tell you that I've never been clever enough to think of something different for every city or town that I've ever played. But, you know, Paul's Paul's sound checks are pretty legendary for some of the things that they have have spurned, um, whether those are completely new songs or ad libs or references. What I do know is that I actually really like this track and I don't know if I'm supposed to, but I kind of love it and I want more of it. It's the anti-Ebony and Ivory. It's it's wild and experimental and crazy. And I say that, you know, not to imply that you can't like both. I mean, it's the ultimate if you like both. And I mean, I think that's the great part about being a McCartney fan is that he gives you a little bit of everything and it's all pretty damn good. But I mean, give me more of this. I love Inner City Madness. Is that weird? that I'd rather listen to this than a lot of other things on this record. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's different. It's a real palate cleanser. It's It, it kind of breaks that constant flow of stuff you expect to hear, which is nice. And it's clear that he's definitely put some effort and thought into the sequencing on this album and why he might include it here. Probably got something to do with the next song we're going to cover. But mm-hmm. the most important thing here, Dylan, is that this was in my hometown, and <laughs> during this tour, Paul played a grand total of eight shows here, which is absolutely crazy. And considering it was just before I was born, I can't believe my parents didn't go. I've just got a quick quote about this gig from the Irish Independent, issued January 3rd, 1990. Paul McCartney was back delighting the fans last night with his first full life performance in Britain for 13 years. He played at the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham, a city which saw a near riot when the Beatles appeared in 63. But after all those yesterdays, the McCartney magic remains. Beaming from ear to ear and hardly looking his 49 years, McCartney bounded onto the stage to deafening applause and cheers. Fans had paid £18.50 or £16.50 for their tickets, which is like $32, $35 or something like that which entitled them to a magical mystery tour of musical history, much of which had been written by Lennon and McCartney. In the 60s, the Fab Four played most of the basic music arrangements. Just the Beatles logo on Ringo's Ludwig drum kit would throw an army of girls into convulsions. Now, Paul's musical companions are his wife Linda, who first went on the road with Wings in the 70s, and four others brought together specially for the current world tour. Lights, amplification, and instruments are carried in 13 articulated trucks. Don't know why it ends there, but uh, £18.50 or £16.50 for this tour. Oh, they don't know how lucky they were, Dylan. Hmm. 
If only Sailor Sam from Birmingham could have been there. Well, I would have been on the run considering this next song. <laughs> I think we definitely needed a palate cleanser for this one. And the luck of those people who paid £18.50 has just run out because we're going to move on to the next song now. It's a song I dread on this programme. This was recorded on the 8th of November 1989 and was once again taken from the same performance at the Ahoy Sport Palais in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Because of course we have to, Dylan, this is Maybe I'm Amazed. Long-time listeners of the show will know that I've always had a problem with the way Paul McCartney sings this song live. And in a sense, he hasn't sung it correctly since he recorded it in 1970. So, Dylan, I'm going to let you go first again here, dude. How does Macca do here? Remember when we were talking about Jet and I said that he didn't sing it? as good here as he did in 2002 and even then he didn't sing it as good as he did in 1976 and even then he didn't sing it as good as he did on the album oh i'm probably gonna end up agreeing with you entirely here yeah yeah that's where i'm at here i yeah i'm with you i think i think the original album vocal to me is still the best you know i get why people like the wings over america version and I, you know, I actually, I don't dislike it. I don't mean to imply that I don't, but I think that the album version is the best. And I think a, a big part of that is the vocal. I feel like the way he consistently sings it live is through the voice of a showman. You know, I'm going to sing this big power ballad for you now. Whereas the album to me sounds so much more emotional and it's a very very emotional special song it's why he continues to sing it today even though he can't sing it anymore it holds a very special place in his heart which is why again as someone who has sung and played the same song hundreds of times and and i've never had to do it to even a quarter of the degree that someone like Paul McCartney or Mick Jagger or any of these guys who have been playing in touring since the 60s have, sometimes even if it's a song you really love or you're really passionate about, you know, depending on your mood that day, on how well the show is going, depending on a lot of things, you might not just be feeling it or you might be in a different headspace. So I don't want to get on him for saying like, well, I wish he 
saying it more emotional like the album version but yeah i've never loved some of the inflections some of the different rhythmic choices that he's made with this song live you know i, I love the song again i mean i don't know if it's in my personal top 10 mccartney solo songs but it is objectively a top 10 solo mccartney song <laughs> yeah yeah you know, when I saw him do it live, I was really excited because I was seeing Paul fucking McCartney sing Maybe I'm Amazed. I mean, does it get better than that? But from a listening experience, you know, listening on a record, I wouldn't choose to listen to this particular version of it because, again, I think all live versions are inferior to the original and this one is inferior to at least two other officially released versions of it. But it's truly amazing. Like, I, I implore you and, and any other listeners to go listen to the O2 version and think about how much better he's singing it. And even in O2, again, when he's older, you know, you can hear a couple points in this song where he's not singing maybe as strong, but he's certainly singing it a lot more confidently so yeah, I, I think we have a lot to agree on with this version. Yeah, it's just not very good, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, next I, song. <laughs> I think musically, in terms of its, in, its instrumentation, it might be one of my favourite versions of Maybe I'm Amazed. It, 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 it's, it, it, it's very tight, but those vocal wounds were reopened very viscerally with this one. Unfortunately, yeah. though... For me, Dylan, I'm out of the frying pan and into the fire here with what is arguably one of my least favourite Beatles tracks of all time. This was recorded on the 29th of April 1990 and took place at the Maracana Stadium in Rio, Brazil. Nearly said the Macarena Stadium there. This is <laughs> The Long and Winding Road. Dum dum. Right now, right now we want to go back through the mists of time. To a time they called the 60s. on this very song yesterday as part of the semi-secret, uh, less secret with every passing moment Beatles recording project that I may or may not be doing on the side. So, yeah, it, it, I've been thinking about this song too much lately. But before we get into this live version, in a similar vein to Ebony and Ivory, what do you think about the original Long and Winding Road? Is it a classic Beatle ballad for you? Um, 
you know, uh, <laughs> I will go on record again as saying that I sincerely like every single Beatles song. The worst Beatles song for me is something along the lines of, yeah, that one's okay. You know, if that's the worst I ever feel, and that's reserved for songs like, I don't know, Not Little A Second Child. Time. <laughs> yeah, 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 not, yeah, Not A Second Time, Ask Me Why. It's like, yeah, I, I like those songs. And they're probably my least favorite Beatles songs, quote-unquote. The Long and Winding Road is much, much closer to the bottom of that list than it is near the top in terms of classic Beatle ballads. I think this is light years behind songs like Let It Be and Hey Jude and Yesterday and In My Life and Something and insert most other Beatles ballads here. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll take it over Good Night. Um, I certainly, you can put me in the camp of those who prefer the naked version the best. I think that when it is broken down to its core elements, it exposes a little more of the I think the beauty of the arrangement and the melody and Paul's vocal, the Let It Be version, I also, I like it just fine. But again, definitely lower echelon for me. And if we're allowed to segue into this particular live version, mm -hmm. I think if you're going to do the Spectre production, you need to do it with real strings and horns because this is way too much for me. I hate to sound like a broken record. I hate to keep harping on it. But the synth horns and the synth strings are so heavy-handed here. For as much as I didn't like them on Ebony and Ivory, I like them even less here. It's, it's, it's too fake. It's too overblown. Uh, again, don't love the Paul and Hamish blend. I don't like the little vocal riffing he does in it. I really think... Again, there is a good song in here, and we may disagree on that. I, I know it's not one of your favorites, and it's not one of my favorites either, but I do think at its core, it's a solid composition, but it doesn't shine through in this recording for me. I mean, I, it's if I'm looking at all the officially released versions of it, this definitely falls behind the original version and the naked version. Nothing for me is worse than the Broad Street version, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> nope. That, that actually went, that impression of a saxophone went a lot better than I expected it to go, actually. I'm quite sure with that. I'm proud of you. It's certainly not even as good as the Wings Over America version, which oh, at least yeah, starts absolutely. with that really tense, like that, bum, 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 bum. Oh, that's the long, the like, Wings Over. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably prefer Wings Over America to the original. For me, it's probably Naked Number One, Wings Over America Number Two. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with that. Anthology Three's a very good version as well. I'm also quite mm -hmm. partial to the Glyn Johns mix as well. Sure. I know not Ooh. a lot of people ever say that, but I also <laughs> just said I like Save the Last Dance for me more than Birthday, so. I'm definitely a bit of a Glyn Johns uh, acolyte there, definitely. definitely. Got a lot of hot takes on this episode. Oh, yeah. Dude, can you imagine just being that guy and the people say, here, make an album out of this? Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, someone had to do it, right? 
Oh, and like at one point he was going to put a get back reprise at the, at the end of the album. Like he was crazy, man. He was he was he, he was making a real different album there. Next up, we have the first of this album, as well as Paul's uh, odd fascination with outdated rock and roll standards that seemingly no one really cares all that much about. This was recorded on the 23rd of November 1989 and took place at the Forum in Los Angeles, California, US of A. This is Cracking Up. Oh yeah! You always bought me back the money I spent Never quit screaming about paying the rent. Quit bugging me. Yeah, yeah, he's cracking up. Yeah, yeah, he's cracking up. Yeah, yeah, he's cracking up and cracking up, No, this this isn't an egg-based version of Coming Up. This is uh, an original song uh, written and performed by rhythm and blues icon Bo Diddley. Uh, if you listen to the soundtrack for The Wolf of Wall Street, you'll be very familiar with the work of Bo Diddley. Dylan, I know this isn't even the longest rock and roll cover on this album, but let, let's get this out of the way now. How do you feel about the inclusion of these tracks? Do you meet it halfway and enjoy the novelty for what it is? Or are you just sitting there wishing that Paul would just put another solo or Beatles track here instead? Hmm. Well, firstly, I, I would challenge your your sentiment that it's an odd fascination of his. I mean, he's he's a rock and roll kid. I mean, rock and roll, that's, that's what turned him into the person he is. That's his first love. I, I don't think it's an odd fascination at all. He's He said from the beginning, you know, that he's... He's a devout follower of the church of Elvis Presley and Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. So it makes sense. And I mean, that's why he recorded Snova the SSSR or the Russian album, or as you so lovingly refer to it, Chaba. Real um, fans call it Chaba. <laughs> you heard it here first. Only real fans call it Chaba. But he did that, you know, because, you know, after after press to play didn't get, you know, a, a good reaction. He was kind of figuring out what he wanted to do next. He did the sessions with Phil Ramone, kind of realized that that wasn't going in the direction he wanted it to. And he needed to blow off some steam. And it was the same after Linda died. He did run double run and he did this, you know, he, he's, he's, you hate to say a lost period, but he's trying to sort of rediscover what's next for him. And the best way for him to do that is to go back, you know, to these things that inspired him the most. So I don't think it's an odd fascination at all. I think it's completely understandable. Oh, shit. I, Cracking Up is actually on Chopper. Oh. It is on It is on Snova. Oh, my gosh. I look like such a fool. My, my, <laughs> my word. But, folks, they, they, they do not underestimate my lack of knowledge of the classic American songbook. <laughs> you know, I know Goodnight Irene, but that's about it, you know. Well, you know, well, I think, did Lonnie Donegan do a version of that? I know the Tom Waits version more than anything else. 
Well, I love that. Yeah, from Orphans. That's great. Mm. But anyway, this is actually my favorite song on the Russian album. And I because of that, I kind of wish it was the whole thing, even with the terrible flange guitar. But, you know, that being said, um, it's difficult to say because speaking from experience, I have seen artists live who I really love and respect their whole catalog breakout covers and sometimes i'm like oh wow that's really cool this person's covering this song and sometimes i'm thinking okay yeah this is this could be too many people or this could be loving song or this could be let them in but you're you're playing a rock and roll standard instead okay you know it, it you walk kind of a fine line it's like well do i respect this artist and they're doing a fine version of this song that they love and that's great or you know, do I want them to play something else in their back catalog? I don't know. I, it's tough because I actually really love his version of this song. I don't know. What do you think, Mr. Wiles? Um, now that I've realized it's a Snova reference, uh, I think it's very fitting. It's kind of cool that he would give a shout out to that album. Though, yeah. if that album didn't exist, I'm sure he would have been able to pull this out of his back pocket anyway. <laughs> but um, Sure. In all fairness, I really enjoyed this brief little shoot. And just looking at the track listing now on the Russian album, it's three minutes and 55 seconds. Yeah, I would love a three minute 55 version of this if he does it as well as he plays it here. Uh, I think it's the best. I think it's the best song on that record. And I would definitely recommend listening to it. I will, I will, I will do so right after this. This, though, it, it did remind me of like the little link tracks that Paul does from time to time, like uh, Bit Bop Link or Be What You See Link. And, you know, th- this is fun for what it is, you know. It's, uh, it's yeah. a, a, a kooky little McCartney-esque choice, you know. Absolutely. Pressing ever forth into the breach, we have my mom's favourite Beatles song. Um, it was mm. recorded on the 13th of January and is the third song from a gig at Wembley Station in London. Roll up, roll up. This isn't the the Magical Mystery Tour, but it's one from the same album. It's The Fool on the Hill. I'd like to dedicate this one to uh, three mates of mine, George, Ringo and John, without whom would not have been. Today, alone on a hill, the man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still, but nobody wants to know him. They can see that he's just a fool, and he never gives an answer. But the fool on the hill sees the sun going down. Aside from Birthday, which technically doesn't count, this was the first song from the tour where it's a Beatles song that no one had ever heard Paul do live, which must have been incredibly exciting, especially for the people at the first leg of the tour. 
especially since they nail it as well as they do here. Like Ebony and Ivory, not a song that I would have suspected that they'd choose. Quite complicated, I imagine, but it's one of the most satisfyingly complex arrangements in the show, and it's great to wind things down like this. Wixie and Paul really do make something special here. The Beatles wouldn't have been able to do this one live, obviously, but this is so close to being the next best thing, especially since how dominant Paul is on the original track, The Fool on the Hill. But a particular highlight, like during the parts where it's Paul's recorder solo, they really reduce the recorder solo, and they really beef up the backing vocals, where it's like doing this, harm- this harmony thing, and it creates this gorgeous angelic sound. I really enjoy this one. Yeah, I I like the general idea of it. Um, I am not crazy about uh, the the horns or the guitar tones, but I think the arrangement is really solid. It's been a while since I listened to the Wing 79 version of it, but I don't recall liking it a lot better or a lot less than this. And, you know, to to show that I'm a man of many different opinions and viewpoints. I actually quite like Hamish's harmonies at the end of this. I think they do a great job with it. But what do you think about the Martin Luther King snippets in here? Obviously, this is a song that he's going to use quite a lot throughout the rest of his career. And we get to hear the extra verse and chorus thing that he tends to add to songs that he doesn't know how to end live. Like, he'll just do the first verse again and the chorus and kind of say, oh, well, there you go. But for me, the highlight here is the incredibly stirring and powerful audio from Dr. Martin Luther King here. And the way it's woven in is it's so mad Professor McCartney. It's got a McCartney 2 tug of peace, Pipes of Peace-esque feel to it. And, you know, you've got the fool on the hill... You've got Dr. King speaking. That's two of the most powerful selections of 60s peace and love rhetoric. And to hear that in the middle of this gig, I thought was really cool. And I know that there's a Beatles cover that I spoke about recently that featured... Oh, uh, no, it was um, Let Em In. Someone, Someone did a version of Let Em In, and he used some of Dr. Martin Luther King's... Uh, audio. So uh, you know what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking about this live right now. I'm thinking this might be a reference to that. Paul heard, heard heard that cover and maybe really enjoyed what he did there. I've got to go back and check whether it's the same audio. That Billy Paul, that Billy it, Paul's version of it. it. Yeah. Someone's knocking on the door. That you know that that great kind of sounded like you were just playing the recording. Wow, wow, like that. Paul really knows how to get the crowd going, though, with this. Just the mention of the Beatles at the song at the start of this song is enough to get the crowd <laughs> into a fever pitch. But we also have other slightly annoying elements of his stagecraft taking form here. I've already mentioned the uh, the whoa, whoa, whoa he makes whenever he's singing, sure. and it's so <laughs> annoying here already. Uh, I, don't, I do not like it at all. Um, Next on the list, Dylan, we've got another song from the Beatles' psychedelic phase, though this is certainly more of a rocker. It was recorded at The Forum, L.A., Cali, USA. This is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. And...
established that this whole set is benefiting from a certain amping up of the rock factor in these arrangements and that Paul's got these excellent rock musicians able to carry out all of his ideas and Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is always going to be one of those songs that just so serendipitously would have come together under these circumstances I think it's a really good rendition of it Paul's vocal is nowhere near as annoying as it is on some of the other ones uh, you know, this really allows him to let rip with that rock howl, which is more appropriate here than on some of the other tracks. Something that a solo Beatle, though, uh, has to worry about is how iconic Beatles harmonies were on those original recordings. And it is hard to replicate that magic, but by Jove, does this band give it a bloody good go. And I'm very pleased with their efforts on this one. Um, what about you, bro? Well, I'm very happy that you like it, Sam. Uh, <laughs> this one this one doesn't really hit any of the marks for me the guitar tones are terrible I think again that very slick and it's also again you know, I don't want to fall into that trap of comparing everything to the original because the beauty of a live performance tends to be that it's, you know, a, a slightly different version. And I sometimes wish that Paul would do more of that. Like, sometimes he gets so caught up on recreating the original song that, you know, I, I think it would be better if he gave something sort of a different live energy. That being said, the guitars on the original are so relentlessly dirty and gritty, and here... It's the exact opposite for me. And actually, I don't love his vocal here. I think he sounds strained. I don't think it sounds particularly powerful. And the shift to the reprise is really flat to me. It's... I, I don't want to say... Eh, I was going to say it's so 80s. But again, that would be very disparaging towards the decade in particular. But there is sort of... like. The, the things that I don't like about some music from the 80s is that there's an element to a lot of it which is like, oh, listen to this. Isn't this funky? Isn't this cool? And usually it's neither of those things. Usually it's just a matter of something like trying to be funky and trying to be cool, and it's actually not. That's how that shift feels to me. And there's no dynamics. There's really no dynamics here. So it just feels a lot longer than it should. But, again, I'm very happy that you like it because that means that, you know, your positive energy will cancel <laughs> out mine when everything goes to hell. I love uh, the fact that he adds about four minutes of wanky, showy-offy jamming. Normally that kind of indulgence wouldn't be my cup of English tea. But when you're so used to pure album accurate, set in stone, implacable set lists in Paul McCartney's oeuvre, then you can actually enjoy things when he decides to hang loose for a change and just oh, play sure. a bit of music, you know? Yeah, you know, when I when I saw him in 09, he added a great jam to Paperback Writer. You know, I, I like a lot of live versions and he'll add the solo to things we said today. And in terms of jamming, it's like, 
you know, I I love a good jam as long as it's done well. For, for me, I never care if a song is one minute long or 21 minutes long. A, a song is as long as it's supposed to be, you know. Um, I mean, one of my favorite bands of all time is the Almond Brothers, who in some regards are a jam band. And, you know, there's a lot of Grateful Dead stuff I really like. You know, all of my favorite bands to some degree are able to tap into that. I don't mind at all if Paul wants to jam. I wish Paul would jam more. The issue for me is when there's not a lot dynamically happening. You're right, there is like an added four minutes here, but it stays pretty static for me. Mm. But that's just my opinion. No, this is exactly why I like having musicians on the show, because I'm just there going, I like the song, it's got a beat that I like. Whereas you can actually... um, interpret this and let and let me know whether it's just uh uncomplicated noodling that really isn't that <laughs> you know complicated at all uh you well know, that so- yeah but that doesn't make my opinion right or your opinion wrong that that's just how my ear hears it i never care that's another thing i don't care if something is super difficult or if something is super simple i mean I, there are a bunch of songs I love that are two, three chords, and there's a bunch of songs that I love that use every note in the scale, and vice versa. But for me, I do generally in music like dynamics, especially when it is a full rock band. And if you're going to be doing a lot of jamming, a lot of soloing, a lot of... I hate to use the word noodling, but if, if you're going to be going <laughs> off on that, I want there to be you know peaks and valleys. You know That's those are always the best jams to me. It's like when you go on a trip, I don't feel like this is a trip. I just feel like it's an overlong section. Dude, it's so good that we weren't doing the full fucking album. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> we have four, four more. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, shit, I got to go. And like, Next up, we have another Beatles classic. This was recorded on the 21st of October, 1989, and took place at the Olympfale or Olympfale, Olympiahalle, in Munich, Germany, this is Can't Buy Me La Of, uh, Of. I don't know about you, Dylan, but whenever I hear this song, I cannot help but get nostalgic about the A Hard Day's Night film and then rolling around in the field and dicking about Paul knows this, you know. I'm always one to profess my preference for the latter half of the Beatles catalogue, but whenever Paul bashes out a song like this or All My Loving, it just hits the spot and I'm glued to his performance here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm... 
I'm completely with you. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, I, I would also, you know, I, I hate being put in a position to chew, you know, whenever people are like, oh, are you a John or a Paul person? Or do you like the late stuff or the early stuff? My answer is just yes. You know, <laughs> like, yes to all. You know, if if I have a, if I have a, a paintball gun, you know, pointed at my head, you know, and they're saying, hey, you're, you're going away for a whole year and you can only take the Beatles 62 to 65 or 66 to 70 with you. What are you taking? I'll choose 66 to 70 because ultimately I, I think that I, I don't want to say I, I am, uh, that I navigate or not navigate. What the fuck is the right word? I'm looking Gravitate. For. <laughs> Thank you. Let's start this over. I don't want to say that I gravitate more towards that, but I think ultimately I, I find myself so infatuated with that that it, it ends up having some sort of leg up for me, but I don't love the early stuff any less. And a perfectly crafted song is a perfectly crafted song. And for what they are, I think something like Happiness is a Warm Gun is just as fantastic as a song like I want to hold your hand or can't buy me love. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great run through of this song. I think it's one of the highlights of the record. I love that they incorporated some harmonies into it. Uh, I think this is one of only like a few of the early era Beatles songs that doesn't have harmonies on the original. I know that they, I know that they, you know, uh, there's the recording on Anthology 1. Obviously, when they were running through it, John was doing some harmonies, but they didn't make the final version. But I love that they reappear here. And again, I'll give, I'll give Hamish his credit. I think he sounds real good here. And this is a really solid run through of it. I'm with you. Chris Witten's the standout for me on this. Like, I don't, mm. know, I don't know who instructed him to play like Brain or like you know, a caveman <laughs> or something like that. You know, he's really going for it. Those... Those toms are getting a real working over, aren't they? Yeah, you know, Paul's... I, I think that Paul has always done a great job of choosing drummers or instructing drummers um, who stay faithful enough to Ringo's parts without saying, like, hey, play this exactly like Ringo. What he's doing here on the drums is somewhat similar to what Ringo was doing but he's definitely adding his own energy to it. And, and I think I wrote this down for some other song in, in this catalog, maybe on the second disc. But for me, I don't necessarily care so much about him recreating note for note, mm -hmm. you know, the recording. What I want is to be able to recreate the energy you know, and that was great. There's some yeah. fantastic live recordings of him in 05 and 06 doing Please Please Me. And the guitars are a little more distorted, but it, not like in a, a cheesy or stupid way. It's like just enough to give the song the kick. You know, about 10 years ago, I was in a stage production of the Buddy Holly story where I played Jerry Allison, the drummer of the Crickets. And oh, wow. And then in addition to my incredible acting skills i was obviously also playing the music and that was that was our instruction it was hey learn the songs but you don't need to play it exactly like a 50s rock and roll band you know play it 
with the energy that you feel it deserves. And, you know, we didn't play it like Metallica. You know, we, we weren't, weren't playing it like the White Stripes, but... Come buy we, me love. Yeah, you know, we... I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's he's kicking it up enough to, to have it harken back to the energy that that song has on the recording. And if that means changing it up or making it a little faster, or storing a guitar here and there, whatever you got to do, I, I think that's what should be done. I think you, they really, really nail it here. Oh, no, like Birthday Earlier was another song that, you know, they really ramped the speed up on that one. The old, the old BPM didn't really work here it gives it a thrust that, for me, evoked the thrill of Beatlemania. Like, yep. I, was, I, was, I was there 100%. Following on, we have a song that is both a throwback rock and roll cover and a Beatles song at the same time. Though not a Beatles song you would normally associate with Macca. This was recorded on the 21st of January 1989 and is from yet another gig at the Wembley Arena here in London, UK. This is Matchbox. sure you're aware and uh, the, the audience as well Dylan Matchbox was a Beatles cover of the Carl Perkins song it appeared on the Long Tall Sally EP in 64 which is also one of my favourite vinyl reprints that die and it's just so pretty but rather crucially this song was not sung by Paul and was actually sung by Ringo instead now I'm guessing this is a case whereby back in the day Paul always liked the song and would have sung it if he could have but it fit within Ringo's limited vocal range, and so that took precedence over who got to sing what track. It's a perfectly serviceable cover here, but it doesn't have any of the charm of the Bo Diddley cover we had here, and I think the choice to do a Ringo song was never going to go down well with me. I mean, if we're going to do a cover at least, why not do the cover off the Long Tall Sally EP that you actually sing and are famously known for that you did at the Prince's Trust gig just three years ago. Why not do Long Tall Sally? What do you think, bro? Yeah, uh, I'm with you. Give me Ringo. Because, yeah, not only is it charming, but Ringo's natural timbre fits a song like this. I mean, Ringo has always done a great job of singing the quote-unquote American styles of music like Ringo singing blues and country is that's in his wheelhouse for me like I don't know what Paul and Hamish are trying to do like you're trying to harmonize like listen I I love the blues like for me like when I was falling in love with music 
I'm going to rattle off a bunch of artists that maybe you're not super familiar with. <laughs> but I was, I was given this five-disc compilation with Chicago blues greats, you know, Little Walter, Sleepy John Estes, Robert Nighthawk, Robert Lockwood, Otis Rush, Sonny Boy Williamson, these amazing And then going back and, you know, discovering, you know, the, the real big ones, the Muddy Waters, the, you know, Robert Johnson's of the world, Charlie Patton's like, it's, it's a genre I really love. And for me, a big part of what I love out of that genre is a rawness to it. And when the blues get too clean, I have an issue with that. I don't like my blues to be very clean. So the vocals don't work here. You know, I'm not saying you can't harmonize on a blues song. I just think it's very unnecessary. It doesn't have that charm. And then on top of that, another aspect of that is I would probably say that I don't like about 95% of blues with horns I because it's just too much for me. I don't know what it is. You know, I, I feel like, again, if, if a lot of the uh, pull of blues music is the rawness of something, I think having the really clean horns really disrupts that for me um it's the same why as much as i love jazz and i like some big band music i'm ultimately not gonna go for a lot of big band music because it just sounds like too much so not only do i not like a lot of blues with horns but now we're talking synth horns so <laughs> you got synth horns you got these harmonized vocals that take away from the charm I do think the guitar solos on this are pretty kicking. I really, really dig. I imagine that's uh, at least Robbie, if not Robbie and Hamish going back and forth. Um, that to me is, if there's any saving grace of this song, it's the solos. But overall, yeah, this is a, it's a no for me, dog. Uh, you were right there, though. I didn't recognize any of those artists. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd heard of Muddy Waters, obviously, but... Uh, Surely you've heard of Robert Johnson. Robert Crossroads. Johnson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our penultimate track for the night is another favourite of mine from Flowers in the Dirt. This was recorded on the 28th of September, 89, and was taken from a performance at the Scandinavium in Gothenburg, Sweden. This is Put It There. Oh, you're only quiet things down here, but here you go. One, two, one, two, three. Give me a hand, I'd like to shake it. I wanna show you I'm your friend. You'll understand.
Now, Dylan, I don't need to repeat myself too much here when I say I was incredibly happy that Paul played another track from Flowers in the Dirt that I love. I think he crushes it here. Very quiet song as well, uh, and I chuckled when he asks the audience to be quiet at the start, and they do so, because (laughs) he literally would not have been able to get an audience to be so cordial back in the mid-60s. So it's nice to see how some things have changed. Surprisingly, though, unlike Rough Ride, the crowd seem to be really into this one and start clapping along and cheering pretty much straight away. Maybe the single of Put It There was really big in Sweden. Who knows? <laughs> Wikipedia couldn't tell me. The highlight here, and I think you'll agree with me, typically quite a short track, Put It There, and like Sergeant Pepper, Paul adds a little outro coda to keep things going, keep things a little more fun and fresh, though this time he goes for the the heartstring jugular by making it the closing segment coda of Hello Goodbye. Was this the most delightful thing you'd ever heard, Dylan? <laughs> I like it. And and I like it because it's perfectly brief. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's just enough to sort of satisfy everything that it's going for. Cause it's it's part like, hey look, he's doing the thing. And it's part <laughs> and it's part oh, wow, this actually really fits, and it's nice. If it went on any longer than it did, uh, I might not like it as much, but I I love it. And I think that the audience probably responded well to it because I think most people, whether or not you're a full-on McCartney aficionado or not, I think that there is a special place in a lot of people's hearts for the acoustic Paul Mm finger-picking thing. You know, put it there is very much in the wheelhouse of your mama's little girl, country dreamer, blackbird, um, all those sorts of songs. And I, I think that most people find that very enjoyable and very charming. It's a beautiful song. It's a, it's a good rendition of it. His vocal is a little weak in spots. It's not as good as the yeah, album. Yeah, like, but... he, he, he doesn't go like, give me a hand. Like, I know it's tone deaf, but he kind of goes, give me a hand. Like, it's kind of really... Yeah, a little meek. Reserved. Yeah, yeah. Like, I really wish... Uh, the one fucking song, I kind of would have liked him to go for it a bit. He finally decides to, to have a bit of <laughs> reservation <laughs> yeah. with, the, with, with, with the whole affair. Yeah. It, it, it's, overall, it's not a, a terrible vocal, but, um, I mean, it's just... It's such a nice song. I mean, the thing is, like, he could sing this now and he'd probably butcher it and we'd be like, oh my God, he played Put It There. That's so wonderful. You know, <laughs> it's it's just a beautiful little song. Well, I mean, if if the uh, audio that we've heard from Kiss of Venus from the second trailer for McCartney 3 is to be believed, I don't think he'd do a bad job of Put It There, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The Kiss of Venus has got me on the go. Obviously, it just sounds just on the record. Um... Finally, dude, uh, we're going to come on to the final song of disc one and therefore the final song of this episode, Final, Final, Finally. Uh, This was recorded on the 5th of December 1989 and was taken from a gig at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, which is where our friends the Blotto Beetle Boys are based in. We spent a lot of the episode yesterday talking about The Departed and me just going, you're not a fucking cop. Uh, (laughs) As someone from New England, I take offence to that. Well, I mean, you probably take offence to uh, Martin Sheen's accent throughout the entirety of that. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then you got Jack as well. You got Jack doing his thing. 
with his cocaine and the dildo. Yeah, fucking fantastic. I don't think Jack Nicholson ever did cocaine. So what song are we doing? Um, Yeah. This is not come together, but together. sound check tracks from this album and it's nice that these little sonic doodles bookend the album in this way at first I thought that this has been another cover that I just didn't know about but since that may have been a little bit too much uh, considering we just had one two songs ago uh, it turns out this is actually credited to the entire band on stage and therefore can only be a jam that they wrote live for uh, Chicago and again it brings up that question I brought up earlier with what was it called uh, inner, city uh, inner City Madness Inner City Madness yeah is this the Inner City Madness for Chicago again email in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com if you know about these unique tracks in any more detail this is very generic uh, laid back stone McCartney reggae that we all know and love and hate um <laughs> Like, I've got a bit of a, a soft spot for this kind of Rough Ride-esque jamming, but I'm sure this is the part where you tell me how rudimentary and unchallenging <laughs> this jam really is. I think Paul's got some pretty bad attempts at white boy reggae, and yeah, I think this is one of the worst, particularly with that guitar tone. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of Sea Moon, but by the minute and a half marker of this, I just want so badly for sea moon to come sea moon is charming sea moon has a melody i don't know mm. i i struggle with this one i think this is a pretty poor choice not just for inclusion but to close out the first disc um you know and he does seaside woman would have would have been better oh, as well god you know? anything i mean i i if i shudder that you mention Rough Ride in the same sentence as this. Rough Ride is so much better than this. No, I, I just mean it's got that... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Quality to it. I mean, overall, having such a nostalgic memory connection to this album, I, I was kind of surprised that listening back, I was as critical as... I, I wasn't trying to be overly critical. You know, I, I just... Uh, I just I just call it like I see it, and and overall, which is what I love when people say like oh I'm just being honest. It's like well you know you can be honest without being an asshole, um, but you know I, I think that there are some some solid tracks on this first disc. But overall, I think it is 
rather uneven and inessential in a lot of ways. And I, I think that this song closing it out uh, kind of speaks to that. I, I just overall don't think this is a very strong closer. No, it seems to be a, a product more born out of the CD age more than anything. It's like Paul going, ooh, let's have a little come down at the end of disc one. Yeah. You know, when they pop out disc two, because we don't realise that Spotify is going to be a thing. <laughs> I don't think if we got, uh, you know, a freshen up or, uh, you know, Paul out there in the world DVD or album, that there would be many tracks like this at all. I think he'd be in full-on give-the-people-what-they-want mode. Yeah. Again, a nice little bit of something different, I guess, which would be fun back in the day when you first bought the album. But there are a lot of people who saw Wings Over America, and that is pretty much exactly how the gigs went. And if that's what you want from a live album, you know, the, the faithful experience, then this is going to get in the way of that. You've already you've already pretty much come up with a summary there. This is a an uneven disc for you then, Dylan. Overall. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the highlights are are strong, and and for as critical as I was being on certain songs, really in the grand scheme of things, I would mostly just say that something is average, or I might be indifferent to it. I'm not going to necessarily turn it off if it comes on. But there's only a few songs here that I consider either, um, you know, great uh, versions or essential run-throughs of these songs. A lot of them are just sort of like, okay, yeah, well, there's another version of that one, um, you know. I think that's something that is not unique to Paul, but is something that people with giant back catalogues and many live albums have to put up with. And... I guess the closing point might be, seeing as how I've just mentioned, like the Out There and Freshen Up tours, they didn't get live albums. And Paul, I guess at a certain point, after so many of these albums where, like you say, it's just, oh, here's another version of that song. I guess in the way that Ringo finds it pointless for him to put out albums anymore, I guess Paul kind of feels like it's pointless for him to put out live albums anymore. Yeah. I mean, he put he put out the Grand Central Station thing. We're going to see the Cavern show after Christmas, I imagine. But there's no de- definitive old man Paul on Spotify represented, you know. Well, there is the uh, the Spotify session, which was interesting because I always assumed that the reason he wasn't doing them after Good Evening New York City is because his voice was continuing to decline. But then he put that up. Uh, there is his old man current day voice in all of its uh quote-unquote glory so um yeah you know it's interesting um as i'm sure when we do episode two and disc two we'll talk about our overall impressions of the record and and other live records so I'll, i'll save my opinion on other live records until we talk about that um but it but but it is interesting i think yeah, this is again for better or worse, whether you you whether you like or or dislike the music in general on this disc. I think it's actually very important because this was a very very important tour uh, and an important part of his history, being that it had been so long. It's certainly more 
historically essential than something like Paul is Live or Good Evening New York City. So for for that, I'm I'm really grateful that we have it. But when I'm trying to look at everything, I'm really just trying to think of it from a musical standpoint. And so far through the first disc, I'd, I'd say it's a mixed bag. Yeah, in the same way that, you, you know how like all the best invalidated Wings Greatest <laughs> and then Pure McCartney invalidates that one? Sure. It's almost like, aside from the fact that this album is important because it contains many recorded songs that he'd never play again and it's great to have that that all tallied up. We wanted to play everything live at least once, even though he never will. But this is definitely an album that has been kind of invalidated more and more over the years, I guess, mm-hmm. especially with our access to media as well. That's probably another reason why Paul doesn't do live albums because they all get fucking recorded and put up on YouTube anyway. So what is the point if you're only just going to be paying for slightly better quality that people probably wouldn't find uh, it's worth paying for anyway? I've really enjoyed this so far. I wouldn't call it essential, though, like you say. But it's a fine little companion piece to, to the to the Flowers in the Dirt album, and it's a fantastic record of a very important period in Paul's career. It's great that it exists. If it didn't exist, there'd be a huge clamour for it. Mm-hmm. Part of me thinks that some of this was thrown together in the sense that the album would have done well regardless, judging on how well Flowers in the Dirt as an album did and how well the tour did. You know, things like the album cover make me think, hmm, that's a bit rubbish. But... You know, the track listing and the way it's sequenced and the kind of journey Paul's been building on disc one has made me think that there has indeed been at least some care put into this. And Absolutely. I, I am excited for disc two. Um, we haven't frightened you off, though, Dylan. You, we, we have got you guaranteed to come back then, yeah? 100%. Awesome. Well... Dylan, before we go, do you have anything you need to plug? Anything you want to draw our attention to? You know, I I would just like, I don't have anything to plug necessarily, but I would like to really quickly send a shout out to our friend Ryan Brady, who passed away recently. I think a lot of people listening to this show probably tune in to a lot of other uh, Beatles and McCartney-centric podcasts and it's a really beautiful community that that exists and they probably know Ryan for hosting the take it away podcast with Chris Mercer. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ryan unfortunately passed away on uh, early Thanksgiving morning in a car crash in Los Angeles. He is only 34 years old and it's absolutely terrible and, and a huge loss Um, He was one of the vice presidents at Atlantic Records and was a a champion for a lot of young artists. I didn't know Ryan particularly well, but I did email back and forth with him for a little bit, and he could not have been a nicer, more open guy. And as I've continued to get to know more people within this community and certainly be on your show and you know, write the music for two leg, you know, getting to meet you and, and Tom and Andy and kiddo tool and Ken Michaels and so many other extremely kind, gracious people who have, you know, welcomed what I've had to say 
it, it's meant everything to me. And, and Ryan was as encouraging as anyone else uh, with some of the projects I've been working on behind the scene. And uh, it was a great show. I was really looking forward to see what him and Chris were going to say about McCartney 3. And it's just so sad on so many levels that he's not with us. So I just want to give a shout out to him. Um, and, you know, I, I highly doubt that too many of his friends and family are keyed into a lot of other shows, but if they are listening, I want to send out all my love to them uh, in light of such a terrible tragedy. That was really beautiful, man. I've already said my piece on an earlier episode, but as I, as I said then, Ryan was, you know, the OG of Paul McCartney dedicated uh, podcasting, and without his show, I wouldn't have been inspired to kind of expand the horizon of what I do here on Paul or Nothing, and I've kind of regretted that I've intentionally not listened to the show because it is an album review show, so I'd... Um, not spoil my own opinions but I've been inspired to download it again and start going through it all and you know despite how fucking solid the show is there is a, a, a real air of tragedy around around it now especially since they would have done a McCartney 3 episode they would have come back and done that in the way that they did with Egypt Station so yeah as Paul would say it's a drag you know yeah but it, but I will say because you never, like Paul would also want, never leave on a too much of a downer. I think that we're all grateful, not just for, you know, what Ryan and Chris with their show were able to give to the community, but I think as a whole, we're all grateful for such an amazing array of, of people that we have hosting these shows and guesting on these shows and, and writing books and, and writing articles you know, I hesitate to even call myself a member of it because very few people know who I actually am. <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, really just getting started talking to people and meeting people. But but I do feel a camaraderie with it, even just listening to the shows. And, you know, whenever you listen to your show, Sam, or you listen to any of these other shows, you you feel like these these hosts and these guests are your friends because we all have the same shared love. And that is such a beautiful thing. And that's why the torch is never going to burn out. And so on a positive note, I'm, I'm really grateful. And I think we're all grateful uh, to Ryan and, and to everyone else who has played a part in that. And so before Denny Lane comes in, I'll say to you on air, thank you, Sam. Thank you for everything that you do. And I really appreciate you having me on. No, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, you are the legend to my McCartney. I'll obviously can't wait for us to do part two it's great having someone on that can spot and vocalize a lot of the stuff that i might miss and it's great to have someone on who i actually disagree with uh from (laughs) from from time to time that's always a lot a lot more fun and i'm sure i'm really going to have fun with this edit as well folks just a little behind the scenes peek um i got really drunk with blotto beetles yesterday and i was meant to wake up this morning and finish off my notes I say finish off, do the majority of my notes for Tribute the Life Fantastic. Uh, not like the stuff like for our little intro, that kind of interview stuff. That was written months ago, but I actually hadn't written any of my stuff for the actual songs. I was like, oh shit. And 
you know, after I kind of recovered from my hangover around midday, we started recording this at 8pm in the evening, I was like, okay, let's see how many songs I can get through. And I just about managed to get my notes done for Together and Can't Buy Me Love just before we started this. And I can't believe, Dylan, we actually were originally planning on doing both discs in one episode. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Uh, We're mad lads like that. Absolute mad lads. Uh, There we are, folks. Denny Lane is already playing us out, I am sure. I've been Sam, he's been Dylan Seavey. You've been listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Thank you all for listening. Keep downloading, keep sharing, tell ev- tell everyone about us, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell someone on the bus. Please post about us on Facebook and Reddit and wherever you see fit. If you want to email the show, email us at pomacanipod at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at McCartneyPod. We're also on Instagram now as well. Type in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing there as well. Same goes for Facebook and YouTube. Check out the blog paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com we've got new articles up on there very recently please give us a five star review and please consider throwing a couple of dollars a month at this show as a little sign of appreciation every month by joining our wonderful Patreon family on Patreon Dylan, thank you for coming on bro it's been a pleasure everyone else, peace and love thank you very much, Harry Harry Krishna take care, bye bye
If we do, we'll hold it in. 